man wants to be a cowboy. Grab your guns, boy. Ole! What you five by my side do he live? Go, you can die. Last week, The Harder They Fall began streaming on Netflix. It's a classic Western revenge story that features a star-studded, all-black cast and tells a fictional tale about some very real black cowboys. The film is one of many recent pop culture references to highlight the forgotten stories of African-American cowboys, from stars like Beyonce and Megan Thee Stallion leaning into their Texan roots, to other movies like Concrete Cowboy, which tells the story of horseback riders in downtown Philadelphia. Zarin Burnett is a writer for Mel Magazine and host of the podcast Black Cowboys, and he joins us now. Welcome to Weekend Edition, Zarin. Thank you for having me. Of course. So let's talk about this. When we think of cowboys and cattle ranchers, it's really easy to think of white men like John Wayne and Clint Eastwood riding horses across the American frontier. Mm -hmm. We've seen those stories in Western movies for decades. So how does that get reality wrong or incomplete? Well, just going by the numbers, there is a statistic that is commonly accepted, which is that one in four cowboys were black. You can start to imagine how different that world and that representation of the Old West and the Wild West would be if you had that many black cowboys throughout those films. So they've done a disservice not just to black people who are, you know, are passed as cowboys, but also just to America and its sense of itself. And, and they were basically being denied these much bigger, braver, bolder stories that you would get from the stories of black cowboys that we don't get to hear. Mm -hmm. Right. And I understand that there's a connection between the end of slavery and the evolution of the black cowboy. Give us some context there. Completely. That's actually a really important transition point in history, which is if you think about slavery, who would have been most likely the people to be dealing with livestock, to be out there clearing brush and doing the things that we associate with cowboys? It was the enslaved people. So when slavery ended, they're turned loose with nothing and they have to make a, a life for themselves in America. So they take the skills that they have working with livestock, being able to, to make land available for agriculture, and they go and take those skills west. And they go and try to make a future for themselves. They become very, very good at working the land and working with animals because it is something that they had been doing and it's something that they had a respect for. So it wasn't just an exploitative act, but it was a, an act of communion with the animals. There was a respect for nature that was part of why black cowboys and just black people of the West did so well in that setting. Well, you talked there about black cowboys in the West, but I also mentioned black cowboys in Philadelphia. It, mm -hmm. It's a big country. I imagine there are a lot of different subcultures. Tell us about how some of those have emerged. Well, you have basically a very interesting tradition of urban black cowboys. As you mentioned, in Philadelphia, they're also in New York. You can find them in Los Angeles with the Compton Cowboys. We saw during the George Floyd protests, there were protesters on horseback in Houston and in Oakland. And so across the country in major metropolitan areas, you will find black cowboys keeping that life alive. It's a point of pride and a point of, of American connection for black people to know that we've been able to hold on to something that has been intentionally erased and denied to us as a, a way for people to understand our culture and for us to understand ourselves. Right. Well, and we're seeing them on the big screen now mm -hmm. uh, in popular music. Do you have a sense of why there is this period of recognition for black cowboys right now? 
I think it's twofold because this trend has been bubbling up. We we see this uh, Beyonce had uh, daddy lessons on Lemonade. Uh, her sister Solange had her track When I Get Home. You mentioned Megan Thee Stallion. They're all, you know, Texas-based uh, performers, but Black Cowboy seems to be kind of like a historical component for the Black Lives Matter movement, where it's a way to say, we've been here, this is our country, and we have a place that is ours and that is the one that we made and black cowboys are evidence of that they are a way to connect modern black identities to a, not a, a timeless quality but the fact that blackness in america has been a lot of things and it's not always what you expect so it is both a way for us to connect to our traditions but also to point out that blackness is not monolithic well i know that in your podcast you tell the stories of a range of real life black cowboys tell us about one that you think would make a really great movie Oh, um, well, Nat Love obviously just got um, cinematic treatment in The Harder They Fall, although it's not really based on his life. And the in also the movie there is Cherokee Bill. Both of those would be excellent movies. Cherokee Bill, for instance, was a black outlaw who was the equivalent of a Billy the Kid, but most people have never heard of Cherokee Bill. There's also Chief John Horse, who was a black Seminole who led an exodus from Florida to Indian Territory and then fought from Indian Territory to escape America by going to Mexico. So there are a few stories that I think that you could tell, actually a lot of stories in the black cowboy oeuvre that you could turn into award-winning films. That's Zarin Burnett of Mel Magazine. He's the host of the podcast Black Cowboys. Zarin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Mama, I got Little brother, I heard y'all ain't hitting in New York. Word. Word. I heard y'all ain't hitting at L.A. Word. 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 I heard y'all ain't hitting in North Carolina. North Carolina. Nearly seven decades after two black army women from North Carolina helped end discrimination on interstate buses, the state is recognizing their nearly forgotten civil rights case. A historical marker will soon be dedicated in Roanoke Rapids. Jay Price reports for WUNC's American Homefront Project. Rodney Pierce, who teaches eighth grade in Battleboro, persuaded the state to put up the historical marker after he learned about Sarah Keys at a local museum and was startled because he had never heard of her before. We look at Runnick Avenue now, you have lights, but we're talking 1952 almost 70 years ago. On a recent day, he stood in front of Roanoke Rapids' former long-distance bus station, a now decrepit Art Deco building, and he wondered aloud at Key's courage that night when the shy 22-year-old Army private was jailed after refusing to give up her seat for a white Marine. You likely didn't have any street lights, so you're a black woman who's been taken by white men and put in the back of a police vehicle. You don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't know where they're taking you. Pierce teaches his students about Sarah Keys and how her case, known as Keys v. Carolina Coach Company, changed the nation. Until a few years ago, she was sometimes able to join in by speakerphone from her home in New York City. I had purchased my ticket, making sure that I had a straight-through bus, a bus with no changes. But to my surprise, when I got to Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, there was a big problem. 
Keyes, who now goes by her married name, Keyes Evans, is 92 years old and declined an interview, but she recorded her story a few years ago for the Eastern Carolina Christian College and Seminary in Roanoke Rapids to help raise money for a memorial in a city park. The bus was taking her home to Washington, North Carolina from Fort Dix, New Jersey. It was her first leave since joining the Women's Army Corps. When it stopped in Roanoke Rapids, the driver asked Keyes to move to the back so the Marine could have her seat. And I told him I was comfortable where I was. The driver then ordered everyone but her onto a different bus. Keyes got off to try to figure out what was happening. And when I got to the ticket window, the lady pulled the curtain down and dimmed the lights. When she did that, I turned around and there was a tall guy pushing a broom. And he said to me, Miss, don't you know where you are? I said to myself, Oh, God, Sarah, you are in trouble. They claimed that she had been unruly, had been cursing, had been disorderly. Amy Nathan wrote a children's book about Sarah Keyes and is now working on an adult version of her story. If anyone knew Sarah, they would know she would never have been unruly. As her sister said, she was the quietest of us all. No one would ever have expected her to get into any kind of trouble. She was charged with disorderly conduct and held overnight in a jail cell with a mattress on the floor so dirty she wouldn't touch it. Keys might have been shy, but young black women didn't join the Army back then without having a steely streak. The jailer came the next morning, took me to the chief of police, and the chief of police said, is that a uniform you're wearing? I said, you mean to tell me you don't know the color of the United States Army uniform? So he said to me, that's why you spent the night in jail, because you're too damn smart. He fined her $25 and threatened to slap her. When she finally got home, her father, himself a Navy veteran, urged her to fight the charge. An NAACP lawyer steered them to attorney Dovey Johnson Roundtree of Charlotte, then practicing in Washington, D.C. Roundtree herself had been among the first black female officers in the Women's Army Corps and had also been forced off a bus while traveling the South in uniform. Author Katie McCabe, who helped Roundtree write her autobiography, said Roundtree had been shaped by battling with her commanders over segregation. And then when the two came together, they had this common understanding. We are military women. We deserve better. We will not take this. Roundtree knew they wouldn't get a fair shake in a Southern court, and a federal court in Washington refused to hear the case. So they hit on the strategy of tackling the case through the Interstate Commerce Commission, which regulated travel across state lines. In a hearing, the young private in uniform testified calmly. And what Debbie saw was, I would say, a coming of age on the part of Sarah Keyes. It took years, but they won. McCabe says it's hard to overstate the importance of the Keyes case in a companion case involving railroad travel. It struck at the heart of the doctrine that allowed things to be segregated by race. Keyes versus Carolina Coach Company is the only explicit repudiation of the doctrine of separate but equal by any court or administrative body 
in the area of interstate transportation. The decision was announced just days before Rosa Parks was famously arrested in Alabama for not giving up her seat to fight against segregation on city buses. Roundtree, who died in 2018, regarded the Keys case as her greatest legacy. She spoke at her alma mater, Spelman College, in 1995. And now we get on the bus and travel as if it's nothing. Time was you sat on the back seat or you went to jail. Sarah Keyes went to jail, and now no more. Despite its significance, Keyes v. Carolina Coach Company didn't receive nearly as much attention as some other landmark civil rights cases. McCabe says in part that's because it wasn't argued before the Supreme Court and because it took years for the federal government to actually enforce it. But now it is getting more recognition, with the memorial in the city park, Nathan's upcoming book about Keyes, and the new state marker right in front of that bus station. Jay Price, North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. But I've always been taught that in the context of someone passing away, if you're not going to say anything nice, don't say anything at all. It's largely a lesson brought on and taught to me by my parents. I, and I've toyed with the idea of talking about F.W. de Klerk at all. I'd like to say it, it's everyone's right, in the constitutional right of the freedom to expression, to, to reflect on the passing of, of anyone, to say what they want to say, to get what they want to get off their chest. And I'm fine with that. And a lot of talk about legacy. What is a legacy? There's, there's a line from Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton, Legacy? What is a legacy? Legacy is planting seeds for a garden that you never get to see. And what we're talking now isn't the legacy of F.W. de Klerk. What, what we're actually talking, the conversations that we're having on social media, on this radio station and other radio stations and other platforms, of course, we're actually talking about how F.W. de Klerk makes us feel. It makes us feel right now. For some, it's a sense of gratitude. Decisions, whether they were motivated by oneself or motivated by external factors of acknowledging that apartheid South Africa is, is never going to succeed. And decisions that put South Africa on, on a plan to negotiations, whether it's a... a self-brought-on feeling of, of enlightenment and seeing the light that we can discuss. Some are feeling a sense of anger. Here's a man who, who never fully clarified and ventilated what he knew about the deaths of many, many people, people that I know as well. Many of us are simply reserving their emotions and their energy other things many are saying I couldn't care I couldn't care if state if FW de Klerk got a state funeral what is certain though he didn't want one and this I know lots of talk of oh why isn't there a state funeral FW de Klerk did not want a state funeral or maybe he didn't want a state funeral knowing it would become a site of protest which it would be 
as we've seen in Parliament, at his last visit at uh, this uh, State of the Nation. And he knew that. And I've on occasion spoken, I've interviewed F.W. the Clerk two or three times, and I've asked him this exact question. Would you want a state funeral? And he said no. Knowing it would be a site of protest, whether that would be a tarnish on his legacy or would make his family feel bad on that day, I don't know. But he said he did not want a state funeral. Or maybe a final gift saved us from the news cycle of protests and politicians moving their jaws around that issue. But here we are talking about it. So I have nothing really meaningful to say. I have my own thoughts, my own opinions of, of loss and atonement and half apologies with caveats and buts. I also have my thoughts and opinions on, on grace. It's Grace is one of the few things of, of Christian spirituality that, that I embrace. Grace. Grace is ad- administered not because it is deserved or earned, but because it's exactly the opposite. It is undeserved. And as we've heard on this radio station, that the legacy of, of trauma is still real. Trauma that is passed from generation to generation. It is interwoven and ingrained in our DNA that the death of someone 27 years after a transition to democracy is, is still visible. It is still seen in the scars of our landscape, of where there are empty spaces where people used to live. It is still ingrained in the trauma of people who lost loved ones. It's still ingrained in the trauma of people who feel that they are minorities in this country and that they somehow feel unsafe. Trauma from apartheid still exists. But what legacy does remain for de Klerk, for Mandela, for Mbeki, for Rufmeyer, and for Cyril Ramaphosa is a legacy of no resolution. A change that came, a change that happened, but a change without catharsis, a switch overnight from a minority elite to a to a different elite. So if you want to talk about legacy, a legacy of transition, a legacy of apartheid, the legacy of people who negotiated, who made agreements, who made deals on behalf of us, then, then I'd like to talk about that. And who are the people the keepers of the institution, every white supremacist, everywhere they go, as individuals, as individuals. They don't have to be shoulder to shoulder, walking down the street, or huddling on a ship. They don't have to be a crowd. They carry with them the white coast. I've sometimes given the example of the so-called Marine Code. Some people have said they can spot an ex-Marine. Why? Is he an institution? He says, well, <laughs> yeah. He will say that, some of them. I'm a Marine. Enough said. 
They say, well, what does that mean? It means I'm a Marine. The U.S. Marine Corps just celebrated its 246th birthday. It's a service with a strong legacy and a strong culture. But the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General David H. Berger, says they could do better. The Marines have a 75% turnover rate, partly because of their recruiting priorities. We were the crack troops that had to respond first, and we thought that a younger force was physically stronger, mentally more resilient, and science has proven that not to be true. It actually, cognitively, we don't reach our peak until our mid-20s. And physically, if you look at our fitness scores for Marines, they don't peak until they're 24, 25, 26 years old. So the notion that when they were 17, 18, 19, that they were tougher than anybody else and could bounce back better than anyone else, not true. So General Berger has proposed a wide-ranging plan to bring in recruits with different kinds of critical thinking and technology skills, train them to be more self-sufficient, and give Marines new benefits, like up to a year of parental leave. He says times have changed. We shape the military based on the capabilities that we think we're going to need today and into the future. And the capabilities that we think we're going to need are a force that's able to operate much more distributed, much more spread out than perhaps we're accustomed to in the past, using a different set of technologies than we had 5 or 10 or 15 years ago. And I think another aspect of it that's relevant is the competition for people to recruit on the one hand, but also to retain people as they grow throughout their career. How do you make the Marine Corps appealing to a more diverse set of candidates? I think it's probably worthwhile just mentioning the things that will not change. At the center of being a Marine, and the difference for our service is that you can't join the Marine Corps. You have to actually become a Marine. They're still going to boot camp. (laughs) Still going to boot camp. It will still be hard. Even if you've got all kinds of Silicon Valley high-tech skills, you're still going to boot camp. Boot camp will remain the same challenge for officers and for officer candidate school and for enlisted boot camp. It'll be tough. Mm -hmm. But I think the people that we bring in will be able to handle the technologies and also the decision making. It's it's really more about the decision making than it is about a technology. As of 2019, only about 10 percent of the force was female. The other services are in the 20 to 25 percent range. Do you see that as a problem? Here's how I would frame it. Up until a few years ago, some portions of the Marine Corps were not open to females. We are a purely combat force. That is one of the differences between us and the other services. We're built for one thing. So I I think our percentages to the outsider will look very, very low, but we were built under a different set of circumstances. That is changing. You know, I covered the Pentagon years ago, and I remember in 2011, in the middle of the debate over whether women could be in combat, there was a lot of resistance, especially from the Marine Corps. Right. And there were concerns about really specific things, right? What What do you do if a Marine gets pregnant, uh, for one? Or I heard this from senior leadership in the Marine Corps, the potential of eroding, quote, unit cohesion if women were allowed on the front lines. Did you hear concerns like that? Oh, absolutely. They, uh, they're bare, they, they, in 2010, 2011, we should listen each time to those combat veterans who have concerns. They're looking out for the best of the service, best of the military. But I think their service was in a different time. And we have 
found ways in all across the military to accommodate what they were concerned about, and it has not affected cohesiveness in a combat unit. So if you want to recruit more women, you're validating what those concerns were, but at the same time, don't you need to break that narrative that women aren't up to the job? We do, and it's happening right now. But it will take some time before uh, at the senior levels you see the numbers of women in senior leadership positions that look, those are the ones, you know, when, when you and I grow up in an organization, we want to see people above us that kind of look like us and act like us, and we go, we could do that. So the lack, you know, of enough of them to be role models at the very senior levels will take time, but it's, it is coming. I'm looking right now at the website where the leadership of the Marine Corps appears, your bio and photo, right. and your leadership team, and they're all white men of a certain age, older. Um, how do you want that perception, both externally and internally, of what a Marine is to change? The goal, I think, as uh, Secretary Austin points out, the goal is to reflect America, to reflect the society we come from. And we do on the front end. That's how it looks when we come into officer candidate school and we come into boot camp. But over the course of 30, 35 years, it ends up not looking like what it came in to be. So we have to change that. Because if at the senior levels, there's a lack of that kind of diversity, it's not being politically correct. It's not being woke. Actually, the strength of America is that we, we don't all look the same. We're not all from the same place. We don't think the same. My experience in uh, 40 years of being a Marine is our, our advantage militarily is on top of our shoulders. It's not our, actually our equipment. We are better than anybody else primarily because we don't all think exactly alike. We didn't come from the same backgrounds. It's hard enough to enact policy changes, even harder yeah. to, to push for cultural change, which sounds like some of what you're trying to do. Are you meeting resistance? Um, I would say meeting questions. There is genuine concern. I mean, genuine, like sincere concern among some senior leaders and retired Marines that be careful about messing with the soul, the center inside us, what it is to be a Marine. So their caution to me, I think, is wise. That's wisdom. They're making sure that we don't go adrift, and we're not. The centerpiece, what holds us to being a Marine, will not change. General David H. Berger, Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, we so appreciate your time, General. Thanks. Hey, Rachel, thank you so much for having me on the show. Happy birthday, all Marines. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we're still singing for St. Louis. The U.S. government subjected many residents of predominantly black neighborhoods in North St. Louis to a military experiment in the 1950s and 60s. Federal contractors sprayed a toxic substance into the air there without telling the public what they were doing. Many St. Louisans have long suspected that this caused chronic health problems, including cancer. Survivors tell their stories in a documentary film now available to stream through the St. Louis International Film Festival. St. Louis Public Radio's Jeremy Goodwin asked director Damian Smith why he titled the film Target St. Louis. They targeted us, in my opinion. They targeted St. Louis as 
as as something they, that they can do something to a population and walk away with no follow up. They targeted my people. They targeted my community. They targeted they targeted my parents, my my grandparents, everybody who were affected by this. This is our community. And when I learned about it, it just it it, it really um, appalled me. Let's talk about what. What we know happened, what we think happened, and what hasn't quite been proven yet. Beautiful. Okay. I love that. Okay. Um, the federal government has acknowledged that it sprayed this stuff, uh, mm-hmm. cadmium sulfide, zinc, zinc cadmium, cadmium sulfide, sulfide. Yep. into Pruitt-Igoe and mm-hmm. other predominantly black neighborhoods. Has the government acknowledged that they made people sick by doing this? The thing is they did no follow-up. The government did no follow-up at that time period to what happened to the people that you tested on. And then they just left the, you know, the people to deal with the consequences of this. So there hasn't yet been a study that has looked at the health in this area and said there's a higher incidence of cancer here. You know, it has we just been... have lots and lots of people talking about their experiences. Yeah, these people are talking about their experiences. They're talking about a recollection of what happened in their community. These are firsthand accounts. Those trucks, trucks will go by and you see with that spout on the back and it's spewing this. this you saw that mist. too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, all, all the kids. We saw behind the thing. Absolutely. We saw fans, big fans, setting up on Jefferson, aiming down into the projects and the blowing. You know, and they had a fog like mist to them. Do we know why the government did this? Yes, the government was saying that this aerosol spray study was to put together a defensive weapon to protect an American city if Moscow comes over and tries to drop bombs on American cities. They, the city can release this cloud of smoke that's going to confuse so, the bombers. Okay. But in actuality, from the evidence, it was found through evidence that actually they may have been putting together a offensive weapon to attack Moscow. And testing how effective it is if you spray this from a, from a rooftop, from how a many people are going to breathe it in. Yeah, what? these different places, so yes. And how did they describe Pruitt-Igo in, in their documents when they identified the site? A slum district. These are the facts that we're, I'm speaking about. Mm-hmm. And then the people that were there can tell you what they saw and what happened. And that's what we focus on in Target St. Louis Volume 1, the stories from the people that were there. The, 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 how how it made them feel, what they had, the emo, the emotional toll, the psychological toll that it takes on a human being. Everyone was in there telling this story because they wanted this not to happen to the next generation. Yeah, and I mean, there's a history in this country of people of color and specifically black people talking about their experiences, explaining what they're seeing, what they're feeling. And white gatekeepers, whether they be politicians or media or industry, not accepting that as if the person of color is not a credible source about their own environment. Yeah, yeah. And it goes back to, unfortunately, us having to prove, show, and let you see and alert you to the humanity in us. We have to, time and time again, prove our humanity and show our humanity so you, meaning like powers that be, to recognize it. That's director Damian Smith talking with St. Louis Public Radio's Jeremy Goodwin. The stars at night are big and bright. Where does that happen, Ray? Deep in the heart of Texas. Madeline Eskins says anyone that knows her knows she is a hardcore Travis Scott fan. Or at least she was. 
I mean, at one point I was really going to get a Cactus Jack tattoo, like on my ankle or something. I was a huge, I can tell you every album. I can, I know the words to every song. There's not a, there is not a single Travis Scott song that I do not know. Madeline was at Astroworld in Houston, Texas last week. The music festival founded by Travis Scott, where at least nine people were killed and hundreds were injured after the crowd became chaotic. Now, Travis Scott is sometimes called hip-hop's king of rage, and he's been in trouble before for fan casualties at his concerts. Scott's been arrested at least two times, in 2015 and 2017, for inciting riots and disorderly conduct at his shows. He pleaded guilty in both cases. Now, the rapper is being hit with dozens of lawsuits after what unfolded at Astroworld last week. The first civil lawsuits have been filed against Scott, the concert's organizer. Live Nation, which is the world's largest live events company and organizer of Astroworld, is also named in several of those suits. That company has already been linked to hundreds of deaths and injuries over the past 15 years. Now, a Texas-based security consultant for Live Nation prepared an operations plan for the festival, and it's a long document that lays out plans for responding to heat, tornadoes, bomb threats, but... It doesn't address dangerous standing room environments. It doesn't address when uh, in ca- catastrophic situations, crowd crush, crowd collapse, surging, moshing, stage diving. It doesn't discuss anything about that crowd where the disaster occurred. Paul Wertheimer is an event security consultant, and he's been involved in concert security since the 1979 Who concert in Cincinnati. Eleven people died there. Wertheimer told NPR's Greg Allen that at events like this, security personnel must be on hand to keep a close eye on crowd density. They monitor them. They don't let them get out of control. They don't put more people in a space knowing that crowd surfing may occur. Now, the event had security personnel and the Houston Fire Department was in contact with the police. But they had difficulty reaching the paramedics who were contracted to treat emergencies at the festival. County officials have called for an independent investigation into what happened. Paul Wertheimer says that investigation should not just be about the artist. If you can investigate the artist, you have to investigate the other parties who planned, managed, profited from, and approved this faulty plan. The question that keeps coming up about Astroworld is how a concert crowd could transform into an uncontrollable mass that threatens human life. Imagine you've got uh, people on all sides. Even a slight movement gets amplified throughout the crowd because as the mass of one body pushes against another, it gathers momentum. Keith Still is a crowd safety expert. He says very small movements in a high-density environment can create what's called a shock wave. I want to pause and, and warn you here that there's some graphic details that might be upsetting for some listeners. So initially you'll see crowd sway, and at that point you should be trying to unwind the crowd density, but once you get the crowd search, you can then result in what's called a progressive crowd collapse. That's where the crowd actually falls on top of each other. And at that point, as people struggle to get up, arms and legs get twisted together, blood supply starts to be reduced to the brain, it takes 30 seconds before you lose consciousness, and around about six minutes you're into compressive or restrictive asphyxia. That's generally the attributed cause of death, not crushing, 
but uh, suffocation. Keith Still has done consulting on events as well, and I spoke to him about what can be done to prevent something like this from happening in the first place. Uh, an appropriate crowd management plan, uh, train crowd managers, uh, a design which is fit for its intended purpose. So for a plinky plonky la 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 type band, this design may well work perfectly. But you put a high energy performer and a high energy crowd and high density in that same space and you have high risk. So understanding the difference, what works, what doesn't work, that's the science of crowd dynamics. I noticed you talked about the energy coming from the stage and for by way of background, people have been reporting about the previous occasions that this performer, Travis Scott, had been um, arrested for uh, reckless conduct at shows or inciting a riot. Um, is that something that really does make a difference, kind of how the performer engages what's going on? Yes, and that's why you design your system around that type of performance. In uh, Denmark, for instance, Roskilde, uh, they could have a performer of this nature there because they have penned areas and restrict the number of people in each section, making sure there is plenty of space for that crowd to move and enjoy themselves without the risk of crushing. Once a problem begins to develop and a crowd becomes too dense or rowdy, what can be done to reassert control, to calm things down? Uh, well, the performer can stop. I and mean, we've seen a number of instances. In fact, you go to YouTube, you see lots of examples where the performer stops, the uh, show stops, and uh, they communicate with the crowd, make sure that everybody's on your feet, and uh, that can then restart. So there are processes and procedures in place. But once you're in a high-density surge environment, there's very little you can do as an individual. It is up to things like uh, the building design or the operations manager or the safety design of any system to make sure they've got a safe environment. So you should never be in that position. Keith Still, professor of crowd science at the University of Suffolk. Travis Scott has hundreds of thousands of fans. I mean, Astroworld's 100,000 tickets sold out within an hour of going on sale in May this year. And in the aftermath of his concert last week, Scott actually spoke out about what happened. You know, my fans, my fans, like, my fans really mean the world to me. And I always just really want to leave them with a positive experience. I could just never imagine the severity of the situation. The exchange of energy between him and the crowd is, it's honestly remarkable. Joey Guerra is a music critic for the Houston Chronicle. He was at Astroworld, and he wrote an essay about the culture of the Travis Scott fandom and how this event may change the way his fans view him as an artist. Guerra spoke to NPR's Elsa Chang. You also point out in your essay that very young people were killed or injured, and you yourself have a 10-year-old son. You wrote about how you have tried to pass on your love of music and live events to your own son. How are you talking about all of this with him right now? He's 10 years old, so he just naturally has a lot of questions about everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he knew very early on that something had happened. You know, when you're that age, I think, like his comment was, wow, these people paid $300 to get in and then they died, you know, so... He's trying to kind of make sense of it in his head, you know? I mean, I'm sure the last thing anybody would think about was that, you know, people paid money and then got killed. But for him, I mean, that's, I think, a way to process it, you know? And he, he just, 
you know, I've taken him to shows with me, like I said, and I know that he's been, he, I've seen it in his eyes that he's just like, whoa, whoa, there's so many people here. I'm sure he's going to have more questions in the coming days because he's seen me and heard me on the phone and seen me writing stories and he knows what I do. So it's tough because yeah. I don't want to not tell him the truth. I feel like it's best that he understand these things. But at the same time, I don't think it's necessary for him to like see these videos and really hear these explicit details, you know? You wrote about how this whole experience has got you rethinking everything when it comes to not just live events, but music, especially, you know, during this tail end of the pandemic. Can you talk about that? I was very nervous to go to this show. You know, I've kind of held off as long as I could covering live shows because of COVID. You know, I don't want to get sick. I don't want to get my son sick, you know, those types of things. So this was a big step, I think, not just for me, but for a lot of people. This was their first show in a long time, much less their first big event like this. So, you know, moving forward, it absolutely makes me think twice, makes me nervous about going out to cover an event like this. What about how Travis Scott's music might be regarded after all this. I mean, there are obviously so many people who love Travis Scott's music, who look up to him. And I mean, how do you think his fans will relate to his music, take in his music after all of this? If someone hasn't been to a Travis Scott show, it's really kind of hard to accurately describe what that is like. I mean, every time I've seen him, I think I've probably seen Travis 10 times at this point. The exchange of energy between him and the crowd is, it's honestly remarkable. You feel it, even if you're not participating in that, you literally feel it in your body. This kind of jolt of electricity and, you know, adrenaline, you know, it just kind of courses through the whole venue. And these these fans of his, a lot of them are young guys, 16 to 21 years old. They stand in line at uh, merch boots for three hours to get a t-shirt, you know, I mean... They say, Travis Scott saved my life. Travis Scott gave me a sense of belonging. You know, Travis Scott made me a part of a community. Will that change? I mean, I think it will change for some people, but I think that bond is so tight that it's still going to be there for a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of blame right now being placed on him. But I think as we move forward and we learn more and we find out more and we see what the promoter and the organizer's true roles were in this... I think there will still be a good portion of people who really still feel connected to him. Joey Garup, music critic for the Houston Chronicle. I'm acting like an idiot? No! I'm acting like a man! It used to be enough to be strong and good and tough and go try whatever hasn't been tried. But now I'm a jerk with a brain that doesn't work if I don't consult my feminine side of what it is to be manly. Maybe we should stay here and hug. Would that be more manly? Senator Josh Hawley says he's defending men. The Missouri Republican spoke last week at the National Conservatism Conference. He attacked the political left, as many Republicans do, and alleged they are targeting masculinity. This is an effort that the left has been at for years now, and they have had alarming success. American men are working less. They're getting married in fewer numbers. They're fathering fewer children. They're suffering more anxiety and depression. They're engaging in more substance abuse. 
In a TV interview with Axios, Hawley said he wants to make this a signature political issue. We heard a critique of Hawley's speech from Kristen Cobes Dumay. She is the author of an acclaimed book on Christian nationalism called Jesus and John Wayne. It argues that white evangelicals embraced an idea of men drawn more from Western movies than from the Bible. She teaches at Calvin University, which is a Christian school in Michigan. When she read Hawley's speech, she said something was missing. It's never entirely clear how he defines masculinity, even though he's quite certain that masculinity is under attack and uh, the left is trying to do away with real men. He uses words like courage, independence, and assertiveness. He is calling on conservative men to step up to their roles as providers and protectors, protectors of faith, family, and nation, and to protect what he calls uh, our culture. I want to ask how this compares to what's really going on in society, because he seems to have keyed off of a Wall Street Journal article that interviewed a lot of men, and it's not the only article I've seen that's played on this theme. The September 6th article had the headline, A Generation of American Men Give Up on College. And then there's a quote from a young man, I just feel lost. And they cite a real statistic that of college students right now, they're almost 60% women. Would you agree that something is going on or even going wrong there? I think that there are many challenges that uh, the younger generation is facing right now, women and men. But there are a lot of assumptions that Holly's making that the problems are caused by some sort of destruction of manhood or destruction of masculinity. When we could look at what are the expectations of masculinity that might be inappropriate, that might be outmoded, that are perhaps exacerbating this crisis. I want to hear more of Senator Holly's speech. Let's listen. It's hard to accept that the pathologies gripping so many American men are good for American society. I'd argue just the opposite. Now, this is not to say that American women aren't central to this story, far from it. American women have shaped our culture every bit as much as men, and their virtues are every bit as necessary to the success of our republic. He's drawing on these notions of gender difference, that uh, women and men are created by God in very distinct ways, often uh, kind of pitted as opposites. So men are to be courageous and independent uh, and assertive or aggressive, whereas women are made by God to be dependent, to be submissive, to be delicate. Men are protectors. Women are designed to be protected. And so uh, this vision of gender difference really runs through conservative Christianity and uh, through American conservatism more generally. I guess we should be clear. We're not asserting exactly what Senator Hawley's religious belief is, but you're telling me this is a very widespread religious belief and this is how a lot of people would read that speech. Exactly. It would resonate uh, powerfully with uh, conservative evangelicals in particular and with conservatives more broadly. I'm obliged to note that Senator Hawley made enormous news on January 6, 2021, when he held up a fist to protesters outside the Capitol who were soon inside the Capitol in an attack on democracy. And Senator Hawley voted to object to the election in which Donald Trump was defeated. How does Donald Trump and his story match up with these traditional masculine virtues? 
Well, it's a, a bit of a leap. Uh, Donald Trump isn't generally seen as a particularly virtuous man. Uh, but, but here we have to understand that uh, these traditional masculine virtues are in the service of white Christian nationalism, really. And uh, that's clear that for Hawley, he's really using this militant language, and that militancy uh, does sanction violence. And that would resonate with many among his base. We have survey data that, that shows the majority of white evangelicals believe the election was stolen. And of those, 39% believe that violence may be necessary to save the country. You know, if Senator Hawley were with us here, and I should note we've invited him on the program, he is welcome. Uh, If he were here, I wonder if he would take issue with a word that you've used. You said white Christian nationalism. Senator Hawley might say, I didn't say anything about race here. And in fact, he can point to his speech in which he refers to dads at Southwood High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. These are, if I'm not mistaken, largely African-American fathers who were concerned about school violence and went into the school to sort of patrol the hallways. Why do you use the word white when you're talking about this Christian nationalism? Yeah, with uh, this calling on men to defend our shared culture, in his words. Uh, He really does seem to be tapping into a a distinctive uh, notion of who real Americans are. And those are Americans who share his uh, conservative values, not just around gender, but arguably also around uh, what this country is supposed to be, uh, what this country is supposed to look like. I think we, we do need to understand how these words that he's using resonate in particular ways with his base. One other question. We're in this period of really intense identity politics, as you know, and there are a lot of social narratives and political narratives in which white men are explicitly made out to be the bad guys. What do you think white men should make of that? I can understand that, and I think it could be uh, frustrating in some cases. If you're looking to strengthen fathers, there are many ways uh, that you know the left is actually working to do so, such as paid paternity leave and broader family leave policies, and that there can be ways to find common ground here rather than pitting uh, half of America against the other half. And I think that uh, white men actually have a really critical role to play in that respect. Kristen Cobas Dumay, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This the city of Chicago. Chicago. For years, Chicago officials turned water into a revenue stream, rapidly increasing the cost of a resource that people can't live without. It's left tens of thousands of them drowning in debt. Chicagoans racked up over $421 million in delinquent water bills over the last decade. Much of this debt is concentrated in the city's majority black zip codes. This week, we have an investigation from WBEZ's Maria Inés Samudio showing how the city's aggressive debt collection system punishes homeowners who can't afford their water bills. that we are a debt collector and any information obtained may be used for that purpose. Carla Pageant is cleaning and catching up on bills. For her, that means calling debt collectors. Pageant wears a flowery summer dress. Her hair is styled in long braids. And they move as she shuffles dozens of delinquent water bills. She owes more than $8,000. 
For years, Pageant made payments, just not enough to cover the full bill. Then she lost her job as an office assistant when schools closed during the pandemic. Without income, her debt kept growing. Then, earlier this year, Pageant missed a hearing. She ended up with a default judgment against her for unpaid water bills, plus hundreds in attorney fees. That's how Pageant ended up on the phone with this debt collector on a hot summer day. In order to get on a payment plan, the debt collector wants her to pay hundreds each month to pay for the past due bill, plus her current water bill. I can't afford that. And I keep telling you guys that. The debt collector sympathizes with her, but warns her, you can't ignore the debt. You don't want to have that bill just sitting dormant without being paid because then it starts to accrue penalties. Of the $8,000 Pageant owes, $1,700 come from penalties. And Pageant has spent months looking for help. When Mayor Lori Lightfoot launched the Utility Billing Relief Program earlier this year, Pageant was excited. It was the light at the end of the tunnel. But she was rejected. Twice. She earns too much to qualify, but not enough to stay current with her water bills. Why would you penalize people for water? I don't understand. This is not like this is a choice. I have to have water. She's exhausted and feels stuck. This is so crazy. It just came from nowhere. Like I'm already struggling hard enough just to pay my mortgage. <sighs> I can keep a roof over me and my baby's head. She wipes her tears and keeps going. Okay. Okay. Pageant's water bill started becoming unmanageable in 2017. That's when the city approved the water and sewer tax to fund the city's pensions. Former Mayor Rahm Emanuel praised the Chicago City Council for approving that tax. I know it did not come without some political costs, but this council will be remembered for doing things that other councils in the past did not do. That tax has been expensive for Pageant, costing her an extra $1,600 over the last four years. Manuel Teodoro is an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He says these taxes are harmful and often go unnoticed. If you look at the full range of ways that the city can raise revenue, a water and sewer tax is extremely regressive because everybody has to use water. Everybody has to use sewer. The pageant family tree is rooted at this Englewood home where she lives with her teenage son. There's a pine tree in the front yard that towers over the house. Her grandfather planted it when he bought the house in the 50s. And now it's hers. If that tree right there could talk, that's why you see I've got a picture on it, the stories that that tree could tell. Dozens of relatives sat under that tree and made this their home too. Everyone in my grandmother and my grandfather's family from the South, everyone stayed in this building. Pageant is afraid of the growing debt. Her property is unmetered, which means she's charged by the size of the two-flat building instead of how many gallons Pageant and her son use. She tried to get a meter in 2019, but the city suspended the program. That was after news broke that elevated levels of lead were found in homes where the meters had been installed. She'll continue to fall even more behind. 
I don't know what their administrative issues are, but um, clearly it's affecting a lot of the residents on the south and west sides of Chicago. And I don't want to have to lose my building for a water bill. The city's debt collection system often punishes residents like Pageant, handing over their debt to private debt collectors. The private debt collectors are paid 25% of the money collected, so they have an incentive to be aggressive. Wayne questions if this system is fair. Is water debt really appropriate for this expedited process? The administrative hearing system was created by former Mayor Richard M. Daley. Daley came into office in 1989 facing a budget deficit. So he came up with a plan to go after scofflaws as a way to create revenue for the city. He even introduced the idea of turning off water for public housing residents because there was an outstanding water bill. Well, we're going to be working with them. We're, we, they, we think they can pay. A part of it, at least, you cannot let uh, the delinquent bills keep rising up. But you're never going to shut off the water at the CHA. Well, how, about, how about giving them a meter? One shower a day or something? I don't know. I mean, it's ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Daily devoted resources to gather evidence that his approach would work and passed a new ordinance the following year. Under this ordinance, homeowners who fall behind on their water bills face penalties, interest, water shutoffs, and other legal consequences. But he went a step further. Daly created the Administrative Hearing Department in 1997, the same one Infanta dealt with. The process was meant to expedite the enforcement of delinquent water debt. This department turns those delinquent bills into code violations. And in most cases, homeowners end up with a default judgment for unpaid water bills plus hundreds more in fees. Homeowners were charged an additional $39 million in attorney fees and other fees that help fund this department. WBEC interviewed dozens of homeowners who fell behind on their water bills. Those who said they had been contacted by a debt collector hadn't even heard about their hearing. And these debt collectors, they're serious. They've garnished nearly $9 million in wages since 2013. Overall, enforcement is booming. There's a six-fold increase in the number of cases between 2011 and 2019. A billing error left a Chicago homeowner with a $25,000 water bill and a lien against her property. The case shows how a small billing mistake can lead to serious legal consequences without the homeowner ever knowing. Hi, good morning. Sylvia Taylor's cat, Smokey, comes over to greet me. He finally likes me. Smokey is back. Hi, Smokey. We're meeting to talk about her win against the city earlier this year. She describes it as a real-life David and Goliath story. I met Taylor almost two years ago when she asked me to help her prove the city had been unfairly billing her for 14 years. I realized that by myself, I was still spinning my wheels and I would have gotten nowhere. The bureaucratic nightmare started when she inherited the family's Inglewood home. The water department charged her over $25,000 in water bills for a house that's been vacant since 2007. When she first discovered the charges, she said the city told her it wouldn't stop charging her unless she paid $600 to register the property as vacant, then another $300 every six months. This, this is grand theft, to just charge you for services that you're not getting. I don't know 
how they can dance around that kind of archaic um, extortion, because that's what it is. Unmetered properties like Taylor's are billed by the size of the property instead of the gallons of water used. That makes it nearly impossible to dispute charges. Taylor spent over a decade documenting the house was vacant and without water, only to have the city ignore the evidence and continue to bill her. They'll believe you, she tells me. The water department might say this is just another uh, dumb black person that lives in Inglewood. As a black woman, she says... She's often not heard. In 2009, Taylor got a shut-off notice for the property along with an $1,100 bill. The water was already off. She assumed it was a billing mistake. I had gone down to the water department and explained to them that no one was living here. My father had died in February 2006. I took my father's death certificate with me. That was the first time they refused to stop billing her. Taylor's situation showcases how vulnerable Chicago homeowners can be when it comes to the city's aggressive system for collecting debt. And she could be among dozens who've been billed for water at vacant properties. WBEC identified at least 160 properties labeled vacant by the city with water debt. Those properties had a delinquent bill within 90 days of getting that label. Chicago homeowners don't have an effective way to dispute water bills. Under the current system, inaccurate water bills can easily turn into code violations, then default judgments. Customers have a constitutional right to their water service and to correct billing. That's Cody Montag with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Montag authored a report that outlined the harmful impact liens have on black homeowners. Liens can have far-reaching effects, like preventing homeowners from being able to refinance their properties. Through the lien process, you're not being compensated for the value of that home because the process is intended to just pay off that debt. And so you are really losing that equity. The city filed a statutory lien against Taylor's Englewood property in 2009. I had no idea that there was a lien put on. And my mother and father saved to buy this building it would have been a travesty to me for them to go through what they went through to be homeowners. And while it's in my care, the city takes it for these falsified uh, buildings and excessive liens. The city said it stopped issuing statutory liens in 2012. But that language granting the city the power to issue them remains on the books and can still be used. Taylor's situation got even worse in 2019, when her Brownsville home caught on fire. Her insurance company rented a place for her to live temporarily, but the city delayed building permits for the reconstruction of her home until she paid the delinquent water bill. And lo and behold, I was told I couldn't even get a permit until $24,000 was paid for the water bill. She was forced to move into the vacant property in Englewood. Remember, there's no running water. And this was the middle of one of the worst global pandemics in modern history. She lived without water for nearly a year. She said local organizations helped her get the water reconnected. Taylor started seeing progress in her case after I requested her account history and other documents. City staff found a report confirming the water department had been billing a vacant property. The debt was ultimately forgiven after they found this huge error. Over the summer, even though Taylor didn't request it, 
the city sent her a form to remove the statutory lien from her property. After all this effort, we decided we'd go together to the Cook County Clerk's Office. It would be the last step in this whole journey. Hi, you work here? Yeah. Taylor is walking around the county building in downtown Chicago, trying to find the right office. It's a busy Wednesday afternoon and government employees are going to lunch. Taylor flags down a county worker. What do they want you to do? They want me to get a legal description so I can get a lien release. On property? Yes. Yeah, check here. Okay, thank you. Taylor visited multiple offices that day and paid more fees to get the lien removed. She didn't even care about the inconveniences anymore because after 14 years of fighting City Hall, she finally won. Maria Inés Amudio, WBEZ News. I want to be a cop. I looked up the definition of public safety, thinking maybe my long-held understanding about what it meant was wrong or that I had missed a nuance. But no, my quick search confirmed my primary meaning of the word matched the definition by legal scholars. Public safety is defined as the protection of the general public. Chief among the protectors of public safety in most cities and towns, well, public safety officers, of course the police, firefighters, state troopers, and other essential workers. So why are public safety officers who've sworn to uphold their mission to protect the public refusing to protect? Last time I checked, the U.S. and the world are still working to combat one of the biggest threats to public safety ever. Deaths from the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. are topping 750,000. And while 191 million Americans, 59%, are fully vaccinated, that leaves 41% who are not. And too many of the unvaccinated are public safety officers who now pose a danger to public health, becoming potential agents of infection spread. I couldn't believe it when I first heard that the professionals in these positions were refusing to get vaccinated. Like so many others who have ignored pleas from health care experts, friends, and family, they claim the right to make a choice about what I put in my body. Maybe that would be okay if this weren't a public health crisis, if they planned to isolate themselves and stay out of public spaces, and if they didn't have jobs that often involve close contact with other people. But their individual choice is threatening the health and safety of the rest of us. Given that, the city and state vaccination mandates for public employees couldn't come fast enough. In August, Acting Mayor Janey mandated vaccines for Boston city workers to make sure all 18,000 city employees got the shot. 812 were suspended without pay because they failed to comply by the September and October deadlines. Last Monday, the deadline for state employees, Governor Baker announced that 94 percent of the state's employees are vaccinated. But a small number, 362 workers, have been suspended and 151 were fired or quit. Still in question, the 2,138 who are waiting to see if their requests for religious or medical waivers are approved. But bottom line, most of the 42,000 employees and contractors, including state troopers and state officials, are vaccinated. That's after failed legal challenges and predictions from the state troopers' union of mass resignations. So far, that hasn't happened. On GBH's Boston Public Radio talk show, Governor Baker said he didn't understand the pushback given the extraordinarily high rate of law enforcement officers who've died of COVID. 
adding he thought it wasn't unreasonable for them to want to get a safe and effective vaccine. And it's not unreasonable for the rest of us sharing communal space with these employees to want to be certain about their vaccination status. I'm upset that some of the public safety workers who have quit or were fired are apparently looking for similar jobs in places where vaccinations are not mandated. I can't get my head around their apparent inability to grasp that it's not just about them or that it's not fair to people who will unknowingly interact with them. And it doesn't solve the problem. Two years since the beginning of this pandemic, and there are still thousands of mostly unvaccinated dying from COVID every day. Why can't we all do our part so we can all be safer? Is that really too much to ask? Callie Crossley, GBH, Boston's local NPR. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Members of a high school hockey team are accused of both hazing and racial slurs. In fact, the story is that team members were forced to say a racial slur. This is now the focus of debate in Danvers, Massachusetts. We're spending about four minutes on this story that some people may find disturbing. So if you need to go away, come back in four minutes. We'll still be here. We have an update from Esteban Bustillos from member station GBH in Boston. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. How'd this come to light? So uh, over the weekend, the Boston Globe published a story detailing how the 2019-2020 Danvers High boys hockey team engaged in a number of shocking behaviors and rituals. A player who spoke to the Globe on the condition of anonymity said he was held down by teammates and repeatedly struck in the face with a sex toy because he refused to say the N-word. Wow! Hey, yo, drama. Hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. All right. I want you to pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. The player who spoke to the Globe on the condition of anonymity said he was held down by teammates and repeatedly struck in the face with a sex toy because he refused to say the N-word. This was a team ritual among the all-white members of the hockey team. In addition, the Globe reported details about a locker room ritual where players were allegedly forced to strip naked and touch each other in the dark. Half, the, half of the team members reportedly were active in a group chat that contained racist and anti-Semitic jokes. It was last summer when the team member reported to school officials having been hit as well as touched inappropriately. Says he reported to school officials months ago. So what did school officials do or what are they doing now? So... Authorities have ordered a total of three investigations, but no adult has taken responsibility for the team's alleged actions. The Danvers High hockey coach at the time, Steve Baldessari, who was also a police officer in Danvers, denied having any knowledge of the alleged abuse. He resigned from the coaching position earlier this year. School and town officials have been less than forthcoming with information about what happens. They provided a redacted copy of a special investigator's report to the Globe only after being ordered to do so in August by the state. 
Well, if this was quiet for a while, it's got to be a big subject of conversation now. Yeah, and at a school at a school committee meeting on Monday, which is the equivalent of a school board, the, the emotions were high. Now, some members of the school committee were more defensive of their response, but one of the school committee members called for the superintendent, Lisa Dana, to be placed on leave while the committee figures out the next steps. Alice Campbell, another committee member, seconded that motion. I do not believe appropriate action or discipline was taken following the independent investigation into the accusation of racism and hazing within our high school hockey program. It is unacceptable that not a single adult was held accountable. I believe with the lack of real action, we failed our students, teachers, parents, caregivers, and community members. What are parents saying about all this? Well, one parent in attendance Monday, Gabe Lopes, stood in front of the local school committee and was very blunt. Some of you folks specifically here, please step down and let the town heal and start over. I went to Danvers yesterday and I talked to Bob Murphy. He has lived in Danvers for 18 years and his two children graduated from Danvers High. I think it's we're, we're hurt. Uh, I think we're hurting for kids. I think we're for the right reasons. Uh, I think the community is reeling and trying to kind of discover where our identity is. The school's committee is set to meet next Monday to further discuss placing Superintendent Lisa Dana on leave. Well, trying to discover where our identity is, he says. Esteban Bustillos from GBH in Boston, thanks so much. But first, the final straw. After years of racial harassment and abuse, a Sacramento school vice principal arrives to work to a vicious attack. I've worked hard to get from South Central into this role that students still look at me and parents as nothing more than a Tonight, a police investigation is underway at West Campus High School after someone spray-painted the N-word in front of the vice principal's parking spot. Thanks for joining us at 10 o'clock. I'm Elizabeth Kling. And I'm Tony Lopez. The news is also streaming live on CBS and Sacramento. CBS 13's Laura Hafley is live outside the school with the vice principal's powerful message tonight. Laura. Imagine being a vice principal of a high school. You're facing racism, you're facing threats, and it's coming from your own students. That's happening to an official here at West Campus High School. But despite all of that, she says she won't quit. It's written on the wall in front of Vice Principal Elise Verscher's parking spot. One racist word written five times. I'm devastated. The deep cutting words continuing onto social media from accounts angry about a school dress code. So VP is Vice Principal. This is the first time in my career that students have been emboldened enough to call me a black n Black Hitler. The racist language Dr. Verscher says is heartbreaking. As a reminder that black kids don't matter here and that I don't either. It's not just words, but threats facing the three year VP and her family. What's worse, it's all coming from her own students. CBS 13 obtained an email the school principal sent to parents, reading in part, I've been made aware of social media and online activity that contains racially derogatory statements targeting our assistant principal, Dr. Elise Verscher, as well as threatening electronic communications made directly to her family members. How do I know that they're really not going to enact that violence? It's not just herself she's worried about. 
my black staff have experienced it. And trust me when I tell you, my black students, the same students who are checking out of here because they don't feel connected, they feel it every day. The California Department of Education census shows 80% of West Campus High School students identify as non-white. Dr. Verscher says the faculty demographic doesn't reflect that. But there are no black teachers. There's not one black counselor for our students. But I tell you this, I'm not going anywhere. Dr. Verscher tells us she met with officials with the Sacramento City Unified School District earlier today. She says they're supportive and protective of her position here at the high school. The Sacramento Police Department is aware of the threats they are investigating. All right, powerful to hear her message tonight. Thanks, Laura. We got we got to get into your your Twitter and your oh, Utah man. beef. Oh yeah, it's really man. funny. What how well, that start? Well, them motherfuckers, they abused me out there, them old rednecks on the Well, them rednecks uh, folks, I'm sorry, man. All right. <laughs> All right, All right. them rednecks people out there, they abused me, talk about my mama, talk about my grandma, talk about my stillborn, talk about my, oh, man, they talk about me, they call me out by my name, they call me the N-word. I mean, you see what they did to John Moran? And, and and his mom and dad, you know what I mean? So, and I kept, I keep telling these people, they've been doing this for a long time, man. This ain't something like this, like this shit's new. I said this shit a long time ago. That's the worst state in the country. Well, I don't know. Is they in, the, in our country? Tonight, a family experiencing unimaginable grief after the death of a 10-year-old girl who took her own life. The family is saying their young daughter reported she was being bullied at school. Jeremy Harris is live tonight in North Salt Lake. And Jeremy, this is such an awful and tragic situation. Heidi, difficult to comprehend, but the family of Isabella Titchener reached out to me over the weekend because they want to share the story about their daughter's death. They say they want to highlight the impact that bullying can have and the quiet struggles some children are facing. Legacy Park was a place where 10-year-old Izzy Titchener loved to play. I didn't know she thought like that. Her family wanted to come back here to talk about Lizzie's own legacy. You don't know what a child is going through mentally. Her mom, Brittany, says Izzy took her own life late last week after struggling in school and reporting bullying, including being told she smelled bad. Nobody has done anything. My kids shouldn't have to suffer. I'm not going to have another suicidal child again. She was only 10 years old. She was only 10. Everyone has a role here in this failure, and everyone has a role here in the solution. Parents from Foxborough Elementary School's PTA came to support Izzy's family. It is on the parents, it is on the children, it is on the teachers, it is on the administration. The Davis District is under federal supervision after an investigation found it was failing to address incidents of racial harassment and bullying. We want things to change too. The culture in this county is not what we want for our children either. Her family says they wanted to speak publicly to not hide the pain kids can be facing and the real impact bullying can have. Even though my baby is gone, I'm going to make sure that I stand for Izzy. We did hear from the Davis School District today. They sent us a statement in response to this situation, and that says, in part, at this point, the incident we are aware of involved another student. The teacher and administration responded quickly and appropriately, as with all allegations of bullying, our investigation 
will continue. Now, we've uh, put some more information about this case on KUTV.com, as well as we'll put up a link to a GoFundMe site for the family. Reporting live in North Salt Lake, Jeremy Harris, KUTV 2 News. Jeremy, thank you. My mom heart aches with her tonight. There are resources for both parents and students who are experiencing crisis or even suicidal thoughts. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, it is on your screen. It's 1-800-273-8255. There's also the Safe UT app. If your kids don't have it, sit down with them tonight. Make sure it's downloaded on their phone. It is a crisis chat and tip line. They can talk to them without letting anyone else know. This is private. We've included links in our story on KUTV.com. Two thoughts. Yeah. Two thoughts. One, what kind of idiot 17-year-old gets a giant gun and goes to a riot. He has no license. He has no training. He thinks he's going to scrub graffiti off with his AR-15. I mean, the stupidity of this is like, what could possibly go wrong? Well, a lot went wrong. The good news for Kyle Rittenhouse is that he's not on trial for being an idiot. Kyle Rittenhouse's homicide trial is wrapping up in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Judge Bruce Schroeder, Schrader rather, has become the center of one of the nation's most watched cases. Kareen Hess from Wisconsin Public Radio has more. At 75 years old, Bruce Schrader is Wisconsin's longest-serving circuit court judge. He has a well-earned reputation of being no-nonsense on the bench, but also approachable. He focuses a lot on lunch. He tells a lot of stories. Sometimes they're about his wife. Sometimes they're about the law. You know, I always give a little speech first about, well, they're often about me, and I'm going to make this one about me too. But the nation got to see another side this week, the law purist. Many people wondered if Schrader crossed the line with his repeated angry exchanges with lead prosecutor Thomas Binger. Don't get brazen with me. Those scoldings have contributed to concerns about his fairness. This case has been controversial from the start. The defendant, Kyle Rittenhouse, is charged with several felonies, including homicide, for fatally shooting two people and wounding a third during a chaotic night of protests against police brutality. Rittenhouse has maintained he was forced to shoot to protect himself. Schrader made controversial pretrial decisions to not allow the three people shot to be called victims. At the same time, he concluded they could be referred to as rioters, looters, and arsonists during closing arguments. This decision contributed to the view that Schrader is biased. This is a case that brings to the fore a lot of matters of public concern. Gun rights, the use of force by police officers, and it makes sense that people are paying attention then to what's happening in the courtroom and the manner in which conversations are occurring. That's Cecilia Klingel, a law professor at UW-Madison. She says judges and attorneys argue a lot, and during trials, there are theatrics. As a judge, Schrader has the right to rule as he chooses. Daniel Adams is a former Milwaukee County Assistant District Attorney. He says media and others have mistaken both the defense and the state to be on equal ground. But that's not how the legal system works. The defense's right must be protected. The judge is the ultimate protector of someone's individual rights to a fair trial and due process. So if it appears that there's any tilt, it's for a good reason. But some legal experts wonder if that protection has gone too far. Jeffrey Schwartz was a judge in Miami-Dade County for more than a decade. He says the prosecution has made missteps over the last two weeks, but he's critical of Schrader's conduct. I think he was wrong on a number of decisions that he made. 
Schwartz now teaches law at Western Michigan University. He thinks if Rittenhouse is acquitted, it will be because of Schrader's decisions. His failure to reconsider them, I think, was prideful. So I, I have some real problems with this judge and the way that he has done things. He's just basically, to me, kind of a loose cannon. Closing arguments in the trial are expected Monday. For NPR News, I'm Corrine Hess in Kenosha, Wisconsin. You know, I've been listening and reading. You've been reading now? I read. I've been reading about your leaders, Reverend Al, Mr. Dew. It is the end of week four in the murder trial of three white men accused of killing Ahmaud Arbery last year. Arbery was a 25-year-old black man jogging through a residential neighborhood in coastal Georgia. He was unarmed. Video of the fatal encounter sparked national protests. Reporter Lisa Hagen of member station WABE in Atlanta has been following this trial and joins us now with the latest welcome. Hi, thanks. Hi. So, One of the defense lawyers here, Kevin Goff, I understand, got a lot of reaction this week over something that he said during a break in the trial on Thursday. Let's hear a bit of that right now. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family trying to influence a jury in this case. Can you just tell us a little more about what what was he saying there exactly? Yeah, so defense attorney Kevin Goff represents Roddy Bryan, who videoed the incident and allegedly helped chase Arbery with his truck. Goff says while this jury was out of the courtroom, uh, he he'd stood up to complain about the day before when Reverend Al Sharpton had briefly showed up in court. Goff was saying he's worried more high-profile black leaders showing up might intimidate the jury. The judge pointed out that Goff hadn't even noticed Sharpton and that the reverend didn't break any of the court's rules. He basically called Goff's complaint a distraction, and this morning Goff did apologize. But of course, for a lot of folks watching, it feels like another example of race and racism swirling around Arbery's killing in this trial. Well, at the center of this case is this open construction site that Arbery would stop by during his jogs. And yesterday the jury heard from the owner of that site. Can you talk about what what was the significance of that testimony? So... He's building this house and has surveillance videos set up around it that he could check from his phone. He testified that Ahmad Arbery was one of various folks who showed up on the site, as well as a white couple and a group of kids who built bike ramps out of plywood from the property. English talked about a cooler and some electronics that had been stolen out of his boat at some point and ultimately said he has no idea when that stuff was stolen or where. Um, he also told lawyers he'd never authorized defendants Greg or Travis McMichael to pursue intruders on his land. Now, today, jurors heard from Glynn County Police Officer Robert Rash. He'd been working with the property owner and other neighbors about alleged trespassing in the neighborhood. <clears throat> Sometimes that meant talking to defendants Greg and Travis McMichael. Here's Prosecutor Lynn Dunikoski questioning Officer Rash. Did you deputize Greg McMichael? No, ma'am. Okay. No, ma'am. Did you give him any authority to act as a police officer? No, ma'am. All right. He said Greg McMichael had offered to be on call if the property owner ever needed a neighbor to look in. Huh. Okay. Well, the defense has been making the argument that their clients were trying to conduct a citizen's arrest of Arbery. That law, of course, has been repealed in Georgia since all of this happened. But the defense can still rely on that law in their case, right? Right. It was law at the time, and the jury will have to make its decision accordingly. And that's why the defense is doing what it can to build a picture of fear of property crime being rampant in the neighborhood. Um, 
uh, he started, um, Arbery had previously been seen on surveillance entering this completely open site at night, but the state has been pointing out that Greg McMichael's statements to police about Arbery changed over time. Uh, started out accusing him of break-ins and then later on didn't know that Arbery had committed any crime. That is Lisa Hagen with member station WABE. Thank you. Some yak bad dreams got me losing sleep. I'm dead tired, my mind playing tricks, deceit. Why is there far more sleep deprivation in black and brown people in the U.S. than in whites? Science Magazine took a deep dive into research that shows that black and Hispanic people routinely get less than six hours sleep, take longer to fall asleep, spend less time in deep sleep. Health officials are calling it sleep inequity with serious potential consequences like diabetes, dementia, premature death. Earlier this year, the Department of Health and Human Services considered improving sleep disparities as one of the main disease prevention goals of the next decade. Well, one of the scientists behind that move has become an evangelist for more sleep for people of color. Girdan Jean-Louis is now a professor of psychiatry and neurology at the University of Miami. Professor, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. You first noticed this in studies in the late 90s, that non-white men in San Diego slept about an hour less than white men, and you wondered why. We just were curious that, is it because of socioeconomic factors? Is it because of lifestyle choices? Mm. And then the whole idea about health inequities began to play out in terms of high blood pressure, diabetes, and cancer. So we asked ourselves, could it be the same phenomenon is also true in terms of sleep disorders such as insomnia, uh, sleep disordered breathing, and the like. So the work that was done in San Diego showed there's a window of seven to eight hours. Below that or above that, you are at significant risk of mortality because of you sleeping too little or you sleeping too much. Anybody really sleeping six or less are at risk. In terms of blacks and brown, folks of Latinx background, about 45% of them are sleeping six or less, mm. which means, therefore, that the risk for cardiometabolic condition as well as early mortality are substantially higher. Well, why? What's going on? Many scientists and researchers have been looking at this since, and there are reasons for this profound difference in sleep, sometimes five, six hours for people of color as opposed to the seven, eight that are recommended for good health. And some of the answers are many more black and brown people work non-traditional hours, night shifts. Um, There was a 2010 study in Massachusetts, according to Science Magazine, of 340 workers in a healthcare facility that found black and brown people twice as likely to work the night shift. Tell us more about some of the other solid reasons behind a difference in sleep. So some of the communities in Brooklyn where I used to work, noise is a problem, light pollution is a problem, uh, the temperature fluctuation in those high-rise buildings in Brooklyn, New York, are significant problems. Lack of access to green spaces is significant problems. And you talked about shift work, which tends out to be more common among African-American men and women. Blacks are not sleeping enough. Mm. Also, we find that there are some psychosocial risk factors, racist influences. Stress related to racism is, in fact, a significant predictor of poor sleep. If you're looking at black with insomnia, about 62% of that insomnia can be accounted for by exposure to racism. So we really have to do our very best to make sure that black and brown folks do in fact sleep an adequate amount to forestall the onset of cardiovascular disease 
as well as Alzheimer's dementia. Well, you, you said a lot here, and it's a lot to think about. Light pollution in inner cities or the fact that it's hot, too hot to sleep sometimes. Air pollution can lead to sleep apnea. And then you talk about the stressors. And I was thinking, you know, white people may be stressed out by watching the Ahmad Arbery trial, for instance. It's hard to imagine if you are black and maybe the mother of a jogger watching this trial of men accused of shooting a black jogger. You're not going to sleep well. There are no question about that. Of course, all of us, to some degree, uh, have experienced trouble sleeping because of stressors. Death in the family, some kids are not doing well, I got to pay the bills. Those stressors come. So if you happen to be somebody from the white background, because you are not really running a significant deficit, you tend to bounce back much faster. Mm. But if you happen to be somebody of the African-American community, or black, if you will, because you already have a 45-minute deficit to begin with, Anything can tip you over, and that's where the problem really is. So if you saw what was happening, for instance, about a year and a half ago when George Floyd happened, a lot of black folks were just not sleeping enough. So if you're already sleeping six hours or less and you lose another 30 minutes, this could be the tipping point for what might become high blood pressure, diabetes, and difficulty with uh, HIV and cancer management. We're just getting sick. Your immune system's knocked back. It's down, and you're just going to get cold and not feel good. Look, you... Yes. Yep. I said you become an evangelist. You literally went to churches to reach out to the black community. What did you say? Actually, I have to say I'm not one, even though I've spent hours and hours as a young kid in church. So I understand the lingo. I understand uh, the what people expect to hear and how to get them to be motivated. So, for instance, if you relate to certain scriptures of the Bible, like Daniel, for instance, the, the fellow that the kings will go to to interpret the dreams, you tell them, you know what, Daniel would not have been able to get to the dream state unless he was a healthy sleeper. Mm. So if you are someone for whom you have sleep disorder that does not allow you to get into deep sleep or REM sleep, you would never have been able to dream. There may be messages you are receiving if you believe in those things as a child of God, that indeed, if you're not dreaming, those messages do not come through. So when you speak that language, people tend to be a bit more receptive because that's their land. They're very comfortable with this. You met people in communities. This is in New York when you moved to New York. And you found that there were misconceptions. Well, yeah. So if you go to a barbershop at beauty salons and you're talking about the importance of sleep. So if you ask, for instance, gee, how many of you snore? Almost to the last person, they'll raise their hand saying that, yes, they snore. Why? Because in their mind, snowing is, in fact, a good thing. And, of course, we know snowing is just, that's just not the case at all. Snowing really is an indication that you're having difficulty breathing. So the effort causes the upper airway to vibrate. So the louder the snow, the more effort you're making to breathe. So when I say that to them, a lot of them are, wait a second, is it what happened to Uncle Bob? For instance, Uncle Bob used to snore, and then one day he didn't, he died in his sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you haven't... Sleep sort of breathing that is not treated, you can in fact have a heart attack or stroke. Yeah. So you have enlisted volunteers. These are people who are trained. They become certified sleep educators to go out into the community. There's also a website featuring black people, in this case, talking about sleep. We'll link people up at herenow.org. Why is it important to have people from a community reach out to people in the community about sleep? The whole idea about mistrust or not trusting the healthcare system, we bypass all of this. So if you have somebody that looks like you, resides in the same community, you are, you know them, you're comfortable with them, you are more likely to listen to them. Years ago, I went to a barbershop, I didn't know any better, clipboard in my hand, 
thinking I'm going to ask people questions about sleep apnea. That did not go well because they did not know me. And you need the barber to come in and say, hey, Dr. Jean-Louis is somebody we know. He's doing good work in the community. He's going to ask you a few questions. These are the health champions. Barbershop owners, beauty stylist owners, church ministry leaders. These guys have a lot of sway in terms of how people move to the healthcare system if at all. Well, and they're the ones likely to know, you know, if they walk up to a young mother and start telling her to sleep, these are the ones likely to know well, she's actually working two jobs and raising three kids by herself. It might not be that easy. There've got to be other ways to help her, which brings us to the other ways, the tools. There's cognitive therapy. There's working with people. You now have moved from New York to Miami and launched the Translational Sleep and Circadian Sciences Center at the University of Miami. Okay, so maybe ears have perked up here, and maybe there are people who can say, oh, I'm going to add another hour. I don't know. But for the people who aren't capable of sleep, you know, just they can't sleep, can you give one tip? You know, we have to be careful about this. There are some people that are naturally short sleepers. You mm. might just be able to get by on six hours and nothing bad happens. But if you, are re- if you realize you're not functioning at your best, that's the point at which you want to begin to ask your doctors, I really need help with my sleep. If it's insomnia, we can treat that with cognitive behavior therapy. If it's sleep disordered breathing, we can treat that with positive airway pressure. Yeah. So in other words, if you are doing great, don't worry about it. But if you have hypertension, problems with your pancreas, you're obese or have developed uh, type 2 diabetes, look at sleep. If also you happen to be someone who has difficulty with uh, cold, you, you're catching colds all the, all time. the time. It may be you're not sleeping enough because we know if you sleep an adequate amount, you are less likely to develop a cold or the flu. Similarly, people who are sleeping an adequate amount seem to have to do much better when they take the COVID vaccine now, for instance. So mm. sleep an adequate amount boosts your immune function, which makes it easier for you to function on a daily basis. That's Giardin Jean-Louis, professor of psychiatry and neurology at the University of Miami. Giardin, professor, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, November 13, 2021. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in dial in if you have thoughts questions observations the number to dial 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate There was one report, many, many cows listeners, they uh, emailed it to me, uh, sent it to me on social media. Lots and lots of folks uh, I normally do or uh, anytime we hear a clip, I won't say anytime, but frequently when there's a report about obesity, dangers of not eating well, uh, I will play the segment from Monster's Ball where Halle Berry uh, is talking about how her obese black child uh, who was killed in the movie uh, he was overweight and how he would eat everything and she didn't want him to be fat. You can't be, I told him, you can't be fat and be a black man in America. Uh, she says that while she's weeping, uh, that the black male who portrayed that character, his name is Karanji Calhoun. Uh, he died at the age of 30. Black male privilege. 
this is reported uh, he passed away last month uh, and they had reports uh, this week I'm just going to share a little bit uh, an actor who appeared alongside Halle Berry in the movie Monsters Ball has recently died according to WWL-TV the actor Karanji Calhoun died last month in his native Louisiana he was 30 and reportedly died of congestive heart failure and lung issues on October 13 the, na- the native of New Sarpy was best known for the role he played in Monsters Ball, which was filmed in New Orleans when he was 10. He played the child of Barry and Sean Combs in the award-winning film. That was the last role he played, which was filmed in 2001. That's his only screen time. I get abused by my black mother for being obese and then killed in a hit and run. And then my mother talks about me before being sexually sewered by a white police officer who killed my black father. The end. Uh, the movie, da, 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 da. oh, let's see how they explain. Okay, so you heard my synopsis. Let's see what their synopsis is. The movie is about Barry's character, Leticia, and her plight navigating life without her husband, who is on death row and set to be executed. Leticia falls in love with the prison guard, Billy Bob Thornton, who is the one who will actually flip the switch. Leticia also has to deal with the loss of her son, Tyrell, played by Calhoun, after a hor- horrific accident. Bingo, that word exactly. We had Angie Schmidt white woman as a guest on the program she talked about the use of that word accident no incorrect and particularly in this one this was a hit and run this was a criminal act that accident makes oh man I knocked the dish over that's an accident not I killed a black child and ran I didn't stay no insurance call the police nothing anyway Uh, A GoFundMe account was set up for Mr. Calhoun by his mother, Teresa Bailey, to help cover funeral costs since he had no life insurance. All the acclaim of Monsters Ball, they couldn't even get life insurance policies for the characters on the film. Blackmail privilege. Uh, It looks like Mr. Calhoun may have had weight issues for the duration of his very short life. Uh, 30 years old. I'm going to say I think that's really short. Um, man, sleep. We heard about that at the end. Eating correctly, so important. Uh, even Dr. Judith Finlayson, you are what your grandparents ain't even before conception. So, so important. Racist, white supremacists, they intend. This is exactly what they intend. Us to have really poor health, poor quality of life for the duration of our time here and for our time here to be limited and low quality because we'll have health problems of all sorts fill us up with lots of uh, edible items that are totally toxic not nourishing at all all by design no rest critical we just heard that report but make sure I wanted to uh, include that Uh, let's see we'll get to a few of the other things uh, from the reports then nab the callers Uh, the first report was about uh, the Netflix series on black cowboys the only reason I included that is because Dr. Welsing, I spoke with her personally and she talked about this with others as well. And she thought she thought it was so important that people know that Bass Reeves, a uh, victim of racism, so-called black cowboy. He was the basis for the Lone Ranger, really popular Western, what they were talking about with no black people, uh, but really popular Western that has a white lead, the Lone Ranger, but that that was based on black male. Bass Reeves. She thought that was so important. She talked about it. I'm sure you can find even segments uh, of her discussing that. Uh, oh, I forgot. 
Gail Lukasik. We were supposed to have two programs this week. We did have Ron Lax. We talked about Henrietta Lax, super important. Uh, we were supposed to have Gail Lukasik with us on Tuesday. We rescheduled for this coming Tuesday, which is November 16th. So just shuffle things a little bit. Tuesday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Gail Lukasik, uh, we will discuss her book, White Like Her. I could say lots about racist jokes. I could say lots about that, but just wait for Tuesday. Uh, next, they had the segment about Syracuse, uh, black veteran, victim of white supremacy in North Carolina, and how these two black females work together uh, after you have this black veteran who's harassed, move, you know, no count, we don't allow Negroes around here and all that. And she, you know, hey, I'm a veteran. How are you going to be treating me this way? And her dad encouraged it. He also was a veteran, encourages her to, you know, you should stand up to this. Uh, I just, I thought it was interesting. I'll see if I can give you the exact title of the report uh, because they mentioned Rosa Parks. They mentioned that this case with uh, Sarah Keys didn't get as much attention uh, and that the ruling in that case uh, took a long time. They said that was part of it. Uh, and they said that the, by the time the ruling came down, the Rosa Parks case, it started to get, you know, attention. Um, but the way that they titled that report, and it's, I see this sort of thing all the time. They have whole books and everything. Let's see. It's, oh, I forgot to have it in two different places. Thank you. Uh, so it's overlooked trailblazer before Rosa Parks. North Carolina's Sarah Keys. Now I'm all for uh, informing people, right? I didn't know anything about Sarah Keys. I thought, hey, this is important. We should know, especially if you live in North Carolina, right? Right on. However, it will be consistent if there's a black, like they'll do this consistently for Claudette Colvin, victim of white supremacy. They even have a book about a black female in Canada where that's in the title of it, like the Canada's Rosa Parks. And like, yeah, she did this way before Rosa Parks. It's such, in my view, they would call it throwing shade, but I think that should be in the word guide as a term we don't use uh, because it's still in association with darkness and something to be avoided, something bad, uh, condescension of some sort. Uh, but it's consistent. It is minimizing, limiting Rosa Parks to just that moment on the bus. 1955 memory is accurate. 1954, 1955. But it's limiting her to just that moment. And she I mean, she had been doing work all the way back to the Scottsboro Boys case in the 1930s. In addition to trying to help rape victims and all the rest, like you can just say, hey, Claudette Colvin and, and you know, uh, talk about what she did and how she was mistreated, all of that, and, and inform people. It doesn't have to be a comparison to Rosa Parks. She was before Rosa Parks. Sarah Key, she was before. It doesn't have to be. Oh, you didn't have to mention Rosa Parks. They could have just included that in the report as opposed to that being in the title uh, that she was before Rosa Parks. Like, I feel like it's always got to be some way of practicing uh, racism. And like I said, totally minimizing like Rosa, Car Rosa Parks had decades of count attempted counter racist work before she chose not to get up out of her seat on the Montgomery bus and decades after that it continued even after she moved to Michigan because of terrorism in Alabama uh, let's see they had the report on uh, the passing of suspected white supremacist F.W. de Klerk in South Africa uh, we did read uh, Nelson Mandela's 
uh, autobiography in the book club shortly after he, I think days after he passed away at the end of 2013 and goes into great detail about negotiations with Mr. Uh, DeClerc, uh, who probably did make an intelligent business decision as an informed white man. I'm not going to have a state funeral because they probably will want to come out and investigate all the things that I did. And yeah, did you have information about black people who were killed? during this time and raped uh, to maintain apartheid white supremacy and all the rest of it. Incidentally, I do not subscribe uh, to the notion that when people pass away, you don't say anything bad about them. If you don't have anything good to say, you just remain silent. I do not subscribe to that as it relates to racist white supremacists. And hey, we just observed the passing of four star general Colin Powell talk about Veterans Day. I saw a whole lot of people who did not, what's the metaphor, bite their tongue. In fact, the first thing they had is a black stain on his record. So I don't see that observed with black people. In fact, frequently it will be it's time to bring up all of the bad things that they did in criminal activity. Anywho, uh, let's see. The segment in St. Louis where they talked about the military experiment against the black people I had never heard of that now I have been to St. Louis briefly but I'm not you know uh, a buff on that area I do feel like that sort of thing should have been mentioned prominently in 2014 when there was all that hubbub about Michael Brown Jr. Maybe it was and I just missed it I feel like I was pretty diligent we did a lot of broadcasting uh, during all of that August 2014 I think maybe I would have seen it but maybe I did miss it I'm not you know I'm the present nor was I at that time uh, but I think that should have been mentioned like a lot like a military experiment targeting that's the name of the documentary beautiful targeting and they use the word this is a slum they could have said uh, ghetto area of negro confinement any of those would have worked but hmm Let's see how they respond. Might be lots of reasons that black people are more susceptible to COVID, right? I thought, man, as soon as I heard that, right, I've never heard this. As opposed to, to trying to tell me about Nurse Rivers every 30 seconds, that would have been a great one to mention. This whole vaccine mandate could be a part of a, just like the military experiments on us right back in not ancient history. They said 1950s and 60s, right? That's not that long ago. People might be still alive, right? They could have mentioned that one and I would have at least had to pause because I didn't know anything about that. I just heard about that one. So I would have at least had to pause and be like, what? You're making that up. That's not even true. Let me check. Oh, that did happen. Wow. Mm. <laughs> I would have at least had to pause. Not just nursery and nursery. Yes, yes, yes. Nurse Rivers. Uh, let's see. The hazing in Massachusetts with the hockey team I included President Obama there again maybe he just didn't get to New England when he did his visit about white children getting better with their behavior because we've heard a bunch of these right they had the one uh, that was in the Midwest I believe in like Idaho Colorado that region uh, where they had a 17 year old black male student who had disabilities I believe and they shoved a coat hanger up his rectum that was like 2017 or so. Lots of these types of cases. But I mean, I had to do the rewind on that one. 
they said these students grabbed a child pinned him down got some sort of fake penis and beat this child in the face because they wouldn't say negra one racist woman racist man racist child many people are ignorant about racism white supremacy none of them apparently even the children are ignorant that are classified as white they aren't ignorant about that even the little folks now with the rich I mean and they said ritual like that gives like a religious practice right clan activity the religion of white supremacy with a fake oh my goodness oh my goodness <laughs> what is that moron he says he says pretty regularly this would have to qualify there too white people don't care about children because they said the officials in charge had not been forthcoming with information now, the other way of saying that in my view is they're lying when you are concealing information deliberately concealing information to the detriment of others that is lying and I I've read entire books they have books on lying in college I read one while I was there that is included they say these are many different aspects of deception it can be uh, did you steal my wallet no I stole the wallet it can be that type of line but it also can be exactly what was what heard described in that report where you have individuals where they know oh I'm thinking it's 2022 do they not have cameras in these areas to monitor. I mean, maybe I guess in the locker room, maybe you don't have cameras, but I would think in a lot of areas you got camera. Make sure we don't have uh, another Kendrick Johnson uh, type situation. Uh, black male who was found in the gym mat. Maybe you don't have a camera in the locker room, but I mean, it should not be too many like unsupervised opportunities for this sort of thing to happen. I mean, you need some time to get together and let me go get the sex toy and all right, get him down and say it, say it, Negro, say it. I mean, and then it happens not. Oh, my God, we have got to address this right now. This is a total disgrace. This is not the culture that we're about and blah, blah, blah. Get the PTA together and we're not even going to share this information. That's not ignorance. All of that is willful. And all of that is, again, something to think about, like before conception. Are we going to send our child to this? Sex toys. Let's see. And the homoeroticism of it. They said ritual. They would take off all of their clothes. The males on the hockey team. And they said it was the white students specifically. They said that. Take off all their clothes and run around and touch each other. The homoeroticism. My goodness. We did just read Shaft. Written by a white man and Woody Allen. Uh, let's see. The vice principal, Dr. Verscher, that was another one that I could have included uh, President Obama saying, you know, the white younger white people are doing better about this and all the rest of it. Dr. Verscher in Sacramento, California, threatened, called a nigger in tears. We just talked about on neutralizing workplace racism yesterday, uh, the impact that all of this terrorism has on our 
mental health and well-being. Uh, she said from her students, that seemed like it really stunned her. Like she, she said she had never had students to do this, to threaten her and call her a nigger. She had never experienced that sort of behavior from the students before. Again, you know, racist man, racist woman, racist child. They are not ignorant. And we've talked about that with educators as well. Like you have to have a code in terms of the students. Uh, and in fact, what that reminded me of, not to belittle at all, but there is a, and I'm not encouraging people to watch this at all. I'm just saying uh, there is an entire television uh, program called Vice Principles, literally. Uh, that's the whole premise of the show. The black female, she gets a job. She's a doctor. Exactly. Almost the exact same premise, uh, except she's the principal. And these two white males, they are the vice principals, are upset because they wanted this job. So they spend an entire season sabotaging her and they do the exact. In fact, they uh, do a prank where they spray paint uh, vaginas uh, all through the school and name call her. They burn down her house. Literally, uh, they do all of these things to sabotage her, uh, including alcohol gets involved later. But I mean, literally they spend the entire first season sabotaging, attacking this black female uh, who is the principal of this high school in South Carolina. And this happened right. This I think happened exactly one year after Dylan Storm Roof in Charleston, South Carolina. I thought that was important too. This came out one year, almost to the day of Dylan Stormroof's terrorist assault. But anyway, that reminded me of Dr. Ver the black female ends up being reduced that they burn her house down, literally. Uh, let's see. We heard the report. Isabella uh, Tishinor, that was the black female in Utah. Uh, black female, black child. She was 10 years old. Reportedly committed suicide after being bullied at school. Uh, racism white supremacy this district is being investigated apparently there were reports of racism before this which they said same thing they ignored that's deception too uh, but we talked about the impact of mental health and the importance of talking to your children white people obviously they're talking to their offspring about white supremacy racism what it means to be white we need to be talking to our offspring and same thing that I said before I don't have offspring but if you're going to procreate conversation before conception what are we are we going to send our child to this so they can be bullied and harassed at 10 years old are we going to send our child to this so they can be smacked in the face with a penis called a nigra lots of things to think about before conceiving a black child in a system of white supremacy uh, and in, in that segment I played uh Former NBA basketball player Vernon Maxwell was talking about Utah and it was it was quick. But he said in that segment that the white fans in Utah talked about my mom. He said they called me a nigra. They talked about my stillborn child. That's why one of the reasons why I repeated it because he was talking quickly. But they talked about my stillborn child. And to have this repeated over and over and over and over for decades uh, with Jay. And he played in the 80s and 90s. J.R. Smith had an article uh, that came out, I think, like 2016, 2017 in GQ magazine, where he talked about the difficulty of shooting free throws in Utah, where they're calling him Negro all the time. And they laughed. And he was like, I'm being serious about that. 
Russell Westbrook had it. I mean, they've had piles uh, of incidents uh, in Utah. Even Dennis Rodman talked about this playing in the finals and having these white people calling him a nigger out there. Um, at any rate, uh, Mormons, no less, where they wouldn't allow black people uh, to move advance in their so-called religion, the religion of white supremacy. But there were lots of reasons why I thought that segment about Isabella Tishanier, 10 year old reportedly committed suicide uh, were important. Uh, last thing I will get in uh, oh, the trials, which I'll pick. Uh, I'll take the Aubrey case, even though there was a Jeffrey tube and I'll get it later. But the Aubrey case, I thought it was so funny. The defense attorney, we're not, I mean, it's tacky and racist, but the white defense attorney, he said he didn't want any more black pastors and Jesse Jackson coming into the courtroom. It was the Reverend Al Sharpton who had come to the courtroom briefly. They said, I, you know, I'm not watching this every day. I don't even know if it's on television, uh, but he had come briefly and then he left like what in the that? long live Al Sharpton. I believe Jesse Jackson just had COVID-19 like and then not just I'm upset that they're here. They might they're going to intimidate the jurors. I thought this case was almost an all white jury. I think they got one non white person on the jury. I have never in my life ever heard a report of someone classified as white being intimidated or threatened by the presence of Reverend Al Sharpton. Like, never. If anyone has an example, let me know. Like, ooh, Al Sharpton is, we better get right. <laughs> like, Al, I've never heard that, ever. The number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. I haven't heard that for Jesse Jackson either. Uh-oh. Rainbow Coalition and everything. Keep hope alive. We better get our act together. Jesse Jackson is here. No foolishness will be tolerated. I've never heard that. Ever. The uh, compensatory call-in, our one request, my one request, if we could not use metaphors. Maybe they were, that was a metaphor. I don't know. Uh, but if we could not use metaphors, uh, the final straw, that was one of the metaphors that we heard used talking about black people in Chicago with the water bill. Uh, <laughs> the tackiness when Isabel, Isabella Tishinor, when her uh, mother and family members were talking and then they went back to the white reporter and she said my mom heart aches it does not get any more tacky uh, if white mothers were really that concerned about seeing black children be killed and harmed by the system of white supremacy this problem would have been solved a lot like centuries ago didn't I mention the Scottsboro Boys before? I think I did, right? Let's see. Uh, metaphors. Oh, I didn't even finish. Swirling. They were talking about the court case. Rash allegations of racism swirling. I don't even know what that means. They were talking about ice cream. 
Uh, race soldiers will regularly use metaphors to be deceptive. Uh, they'll try to take two concepts and insist that they are exactly the same when frequently that is not the case at all. Victims, including myself, uh, we are still learning. And so sometimes we will substitute an analogy comparison of some sort uh, for logic uh, for this broadcast. If we could be as precise and exact as we can, that would be great. Uh, I will give reminders. No metaphors for this broadcast, please. Thank you kindly. Uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, observations, that would be grand. Uh, if you have additional comments, questions, observations, uh, just make sure everyone has at least one chance to share and you can give us your additional thoughts. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate the cows listener supported counter racist radio visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button is in the top right corner uh, it's also linked uh, directly beneath the button uh, link for venmo cash app uh, on cash app the address cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows much obliged for all the folks who have invested for a dozen years. Hopefully the cows has been worthy of your time and energy. Uh, you can also visit the wish list at amazon.com. Uh, should be under Gus T renegade uh, also linked on the blog. Much obliged again for all the folks who have nabbed an item or three uh, over the past 12 years. Uh, hopefully the program has provided uh, accurate information on what it means to be white things. Non-white people can and should be doing to replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Uh, let's see. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, line should be open. Uh, feel free. Louisiana, yes, ma'am. Um, I wanted to say uh, uh, thanks for the um, session tonight. I hope everyone's doing well. Um, I'm actually in bed listening to this. I, I'm not going to take long at all. I, I'm going to save my hacky day with uh, suspected racist the next time, but um, it was a little heavy for me. And I just wanted to say um, rest in peace, rest in power, and just just rest to Izzy. I can't remember her last name. And I just pray for um, justice for her family, her mother in particular, because, because she wasn't a victim of bullying. She was a victim of racism, white supremacy. And um, that was severely overlooked in the um in the segment in my heart ached for that lady. Um I, I haven't had that loss but um like she said she she was just ten and that's really sad to me. And that's all I wanna say. Um whew, God please help us replace white supremacy with justice. Um 
Lynn. Thank you. Good night. Much obliged, Irie. Uh, rest is super important. Hope everyone, you as well. She said she was listening in bed. That's awesome. Um, get your uh, rest. And uh, yeah, we'll, I guess we'll get to hear the report about what happened uh, at a later date, hopefully. And uh, stay as safe as you possibly can under conditions of white supremacy. But yeah, that happens regularly. Racism, white supremacy will be minimized or ignored uh, in reports, even of the most extreme nature other folks who dialed in with a hand up hello uh yes ma'am greetings our our caller in georgia hello everyone i hope they're having the best evening can i hope i gets better soon um i guess a couple of things i the last conversation about sleep sleep is important but i thought i heard the lady say Oh, the single mom with this, that, and the other. I don't know all these black women that are single mom. I don't know them. First, they say we can't get married. Now, all of a sudden, we single moms. I don't, whatever. And um, I guess as someone who doesn't get um, relaxers anymore, um, I don't, even when I did, I guess, I didn't really go to the beauty shop that much, so I don't know this dissemination of information through the barber salons and beauty shops, especially during COVID, where I'm sure some people did learn how to do those things, take care of their hair on their own. So, um, you know, it's not like you're going to go to the, you're going to, you have to sit in there every day to get everybody you want to get these drop-ins at the salon and at church or whatever. Um, to kind of, I don't know, I guess started getting on my nerves. Like, we just go to these groups and don't go other places. Um, the children, the young lady that um, allegedly took a home, home life, that is tragic. And I know a lot of times we talk about homeschooling and things like that. And yes, that's best, but we know there are a lot of people um, and a lot of black people, even if they have what we call good jobs, I guess even like welding, electrician, something like that, where you necessarily didn't go to college, you know, they have jobs where they have to go out. So, you know, we just, you know, hope the best for those who have to send their children to school. You know, we say, oh, homeschool, homeschool. We know that's not an option for everyone. Um, and to contrast the sensitivity, because it sounded like, I don't know if it was a white man talking about the, his child with the Travis Scott concert. You know, he doesn't have to go. That's the job that he chose to go work there. His son doesn't have to go. His son probably shouldn't be going to those concerts. And how white children seem to always be so fragile. They can't take any news. They can't take the talk of what's happening to black people. They can't take, oh, there was an accident. Now, I remember um, when the tragedy at the Mother Emanuel Church happened. I just so was at the stop. I had car trouble on the way to go visit my father because it was around Father's Day weekend of that year. Um, and there was this white lady with her son, and they were talk it had just happened, so they were talking about it. She hurried up and, you know, took her son away from the TV. I'm like, that's your people. You need to let him know which that is your people. Why are you hiding? That's an action of your of your community against our against black people. 
with just how they get to be sensitive and old, everything is so fragile for them. But our children have to grow up tough and be ready for everything. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And like the young lady who, like I said, literally kills herself, she has to go to school. And, you know, she was, she was a beautiful black child, which you get teased about, but then having a mental disability, which, of course, we're not allowed to have, as, of course, some of this and civil, like Kanye West, I thought I'm a big Kanye West fan, but he did announce a mental disability, but everyone just keeps making fun of him, and he, as far as I know, he interrupted someone when they were talking, like he was the first and or last person to do that. Um, thank you. I think they got lots of issues with Kanye. The interrupting, that's, I think they would say that's just one. It's a long list of things. Uh, talk bad about our president, George W. Bush, and long list of things with Ye. Uh, much obliged, uh, caller in Georgia. Uh, I do not have children, and I think she can set me straight, but I think caller in Georgia has also said she doesn't have children either, but, uh, I will go with the logic of the non-parents on this one. Like, I think uh, if five-year-old child, six-year-old child, seven-year-old child, anything up upwards, like, yes. Uh, Dunstorm Roof, like, you need to see this. Like, we need to watch this together, in fact, you know, like, so that hopefully, you know, you have children one day, my grandchild, uh, you all can sit and talk, yes sat down you know my attempted father and we watched the report i remember exactly where i was uh when the shooting happened and we talked about it and you know said this is you know this is the world that we live in you know all the talk about racism and blah 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 like this is why seminal moment and you know i was with my dad safe spot just this is the reality in which we live like that's what i mean about these type of conversations before and what i said before like those children in Massachusetts, sex toy, beating someone, say nigger, say nigger. That's uh, that's not sensitized or, oh, they're so sensitive they can't have. No, nah, they've had lots of conversation, apparently. And who modeled this behavior? That sounds like strikingly similar to what I hear in a lot of these white fraternities and sororities. Same type of hazing rituals. That's what they said rituals who's modeling this behavior for white 17 year olds anywho uh, much obliged uh, caller in Georgia uh, number again 720 7167300 the code 564-943-POUND Press star six one if you would like to participate. Can I be heard? Greetings, Mo in Dallas. Uh, I guess mm, I was going to say close to Astro World, but not really. Houston is not not that close to Dallas. Good to hear from you, sir. It's a it's a it's a couple hours, uh, maybe three three and a half hours. Um, I have a family in Houston, so it's not a short drive. Uh, but yeah, tragic, very tragic. Uh, what happened in Astro World? That's where I'm opening up 
before I start, uh, yes, greetings, listeners and callers. Um, again, um, thank you, Gus, for the program. I really do appreciate it. Um, and as far as um, Travis uh, Scott um, being sued along with Live Nation um, for the uh, tragedy, that, that was it was very tragic what happened to to those people. They did go there, but I, don't, I assume they didn't go there to die. Um, um, but I, I don't like how the onus is being placed on him for the event, um, simply because like working in in large spaces. I have a history of working in large spaces. I understand the the the, the job and the duties of the fire marshal, and how they have to approve these spaces, and um, like like things like egress is very important. I wouldn't know that word if it wasn't for um, uh, the panic that the fire marshal, uh, you know, uh, induces in a, in a workplace, uh, egress and, and access to emergency exits. And, and, and I think like that should be like a topic of discussion before the science of crowd dynamics is even brought into a conversation. They have a crowd scientist, um, but no one's talking about the duties of the fire marshal. In this place, um, uh, uh, the the five hundred thousand, uh, no, 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 not not five hundred, twenty five thousand dollar water bill, uh, in the lien placed on um, the victim's home. Uh, uh, I, 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 it that's a very sad story. Um, but uh, I'm glad she she got it resolved. It took forty fourteen years. That's very 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 sad and very twisted how they can bill you for services not rendered and place a lien on your home unbeknownst to you. Uh, sounds like gentrification, and I doubt that that could happen to a white person. Like like or you know, not that it could, but it it does that doesn't seem that seems like a very specific criteria would meet that <laughs> those those particular issues um the hockey team ritual um the 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 slapping um another student with a sex toy because he refused to say the n word or nigger um i'm assuming uh maybe uh, this child was being punished and maybe this was a white child um, I, I'm just assuming because it wasn't specified, um, um, I, but it, I'm just assuming that because they wanted him to say it, not that that child was being called that. That and the other sexual rituals, the running around and all of those things, um, it is it, it is very, very specific. I'll say it that way. I don't understand the activity, but it is very specific. And it is in line um, with uh, with what I've heard white uh, fraternities uh, and sororities practice. Um, um, as far as the uh, last thing, as far as the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, case, um, I, I don't want to I, I don't want to speak on that long. But I did notice uh, something, if, if and I wanted to see if any other callers noticed it too. 
And the, the the video I saw is around three hours, three minutes, and 20 seconds long. And it's like the prosecutor cross-examining Rittenhouse. It says full video. And the time stamp is two hours, 52 minutes. Um, my question is, is this legal? Um, it seems that uh, the the shooter was on the stand and he could make eye contact with his defense attorney and look as soon as if they were communicating while he was being questioned um that's what it seemed like uh, but if anyone was interested again the time step is two hours 52 minutes um the um actual act is around 2 52 30 it's the three hour video three hours and three minutes uh, thank you i mean my line. Hmm. Fascinating. I can give you, oh, there are two O.J. Simpson ties uh, to Kyle Rittenhouse just from this week. Uh, Number one, the white woman who helped the O.J. Simpson defense uh, attorneys select the jury. uh, Joanne Dimitri, I believe is her name. She is employed in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial as well. That's one. Two, um, Jeffrey Tubin. So we heard him this week in the segment. He was the one talking about Kyle Rittenhouse being stupid and an idiot. Um, many people, uh, he was trending as they say this week were comments like what in the world we is, is we have to have, there's something so, uh, eloquent and uniquely informed about Jeffrey Tubin that we got to have him back on the air to give us expert opinion on the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, trial, like a number of folks pointed that out. O.J. Simpson uh, connections abound. Uh, That's the only reason that we read the O.J. Simpson book was his Zoom misconduct from a year ago this time. Um, As for what O.J. Simpson, so you are not supposed to be like doing signals that came up during the O.J. Simpson trial. Johnny Cochran was accused of of, uh, giving some sort of hand signals to one of the defense witnesses while they were on the stand that is illegal. Uh, I think you might even be something where you could be cited like the attorney. Like, uh, I don't know if you could be disbarred for it, but it's certainly misconduct on the part of the attorney. Like they should know all attorneys know that that's, you know, illegal, not proper courtroom proceedings. So that shouldn't be happening. We'd have to check it out to see, you know, if that's what it looks like. Uh, as for the Astroworld, that was why I included that report. Uh, Because I felt there was lots of talking, blaming this black male and, you know, like, oh, my God, they had the white woman. She sounded like I suspect she would be classified as white beginning the report talking about, oh, man, I used to be his biggest fan and I'll never listen to his music again and all that. Like, I think there are lots of individuals who are generally responsible uh, when they have these sort of big events for security, crowd control, like lots of folks. And it's generally not the performer who is most in charge of what is happening now they, I think I've even seen read reports where they were saying well the concert continued even after you know all of this had taken place like was he informed like again the people who are supposed to be in charge of monitoring security security for the performer making sure that the crowd folks are behaving and all of that are they informed? Are they communicating? Like what's supposed to be done? You're supposed to have a plan. What's supposed to happen if things get out of control and all the rest of it. I had not really heard very much of that at all. It had just been lots of, you know, blaming it. That is a fabulous report about, Hey, I have, I worked at a comedy club in Atlanta that was relatively small. I think max capacity was 
well below 500 people. Uh, I'd say maybe, maybe 300, maybe. But I know the fire, there would be someone from the fire department there. Regu- well, I don't say regularly. I saw them more than once uh, about code enforcement and, hey, you cannot have tons of people in here. If something happens, if, like he said, exits, people can't get out and all the rest can't be a stampede like numerous times. So you didn't have, you know, any fire officials to come by and check this out, especially if you got someone, a performer who has a reputation for unruly behavior at concerts. That would be, as he said, that should be a reason to have even more security, right? Number again, 720-716-7300. Be code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Greetings, guests. Greetings, callers and listeners. Um, there are so much terrorism 24-7 and the system of white supremacy. Um, the clip with the black male who was saying that um, black people have to prove their um, humanity um, in the system of white supremacy, uh, I don't suspect um, humanity exists, but um, I, I decoded that as him um, saying that black people have to prove their credibility. And again, in the system of white supremacy, uh, black people have no um, credibility at all. And I'm just all of the broadcasts that you played, just one thing kept coming to mind, just that it would be so, so pleasant to um, just see more victims of racism uh, being logical and um, not so emotional. It seems that they, the racist man and racist woman have done a stellar job at just conditioning us and programming us and victimizing us to such a degree where we're just very, very, very um, emotional, and it's terroristic to a, to the maximum degree with the black girl who um, was driven to uh, commit suicide due to the terrorism from white supremacy and um, the super um, incorrect to, to 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 for the black um, victim parent to have to experience that. But uh, just a, a hard lesson in um, the importance of just understanding that um, we are in a system of white supremacy. These things are supposed to happen. You know, that that's white supremacy's job is to, to do just that, to drive um, non-white people um, more and more and more insane. And then um, suicide is definitely one of those ways that uh, it, it wants us to um, to go toward. And with the um, Travis Scott incident, um, from what I've seen, the majority of his um, fanatics are um, white people and um, non-black people, and uh, of course, black people as well. But that's what um, his noise is designed to do, I suspect. The so-called music industry uh, produces many entertainers who produce noise that is just totally destructive and um his music is not, his noise is not about helping people. It's not about solving problems. It's about being a, a, a rager. It's about um, that sort of destructive um, energy. So he's not to, to blame entirely. Racist man, racist woman could have prevented that if they had wanted to. And it's just really incorrect that um, um, more people aren't understanding that, um, you know, that 
it's just area three entertainment. That's what it's all about. Um, just producing nonsense and, and just driving, making people just want to be non-constructive and destructive because I suspect if you had music about helping people, about solving problems, then his fanatics would have um, wanted to help the people who needed help during that um, concert, but they didn't. They were just so enthralled by um, his uh, so-called electric energy um, and whatnot. And um, just a, a, a incredible display of white domination with the, what's going on in Eaglewood with the, the black uh, female and her, um, her, her they're just I don't know, I, I can't even fathom being told I have to pay $25,000 for a vacant um, lot or I mean a vacant property that I, I haven't been I just I just just another example of why we really probably need to understand white supremacy what it is and how it works and maybe um Constitution as well, so that's so we can use that to our um, attempt to use that to our advantage because we don't have anything to hide behind. We don't, we can't hide behind a system of white supremacy because it's designed against us. But we can attempt to hide behind or use the Constitution to um, help us to solve our problems because this is just it, it's ridiculous. It's twenty four seven terrorism. Oh, and um, with what's going on and what what happened with the hockey teenagers and that's. Uh, wow, what a uh, a telling example of what it means to be white. Um, that is just very, very incorrect to have that sort of homoeroticism with the young white males touching each other in the locker rooms. I, I suspect um, older people are aware that that that, that um, protest ritual is happening, but um, it's just probably white tradition. It's probably just their, their tradition to do that. The coach probably did it. And with his um, when he was on the team, if he was, and um, it's just, just really decrepit that we are are living in this system of white supremacy, and it just just seems to be um, very very few non-white people who are interested in um, learning about the problem, solving the problem. Um, but this program is really um, necessary and very very constructive, and I hope you're able to continue it. And I'll meet my line. Much obliged. Uh, significant point. Uh, the sounds, noise that was being amplified at this concert at Astro World uh, in Houston, Texas, uh, at the time of these nine fatalities. I think it was eight reported fatalities at first, and then it uh, went up to nine. Um, I don't think the song that was being played at the time was, you know, like you know, don't mistreat, help who needs help. Don't I don't I don't think that's what was blaring uh, on the speakers. And I mean, you know, as he said, fatalities, terrible, you know, unjust death, nothing to uh, cheer about, even though that is exactly what's promoted in the system of white supremacy. But that notwithstanding, like, yeah, like they said, the uh, Mr. Scott, a record of unruly behavior at concerts. So this is a part of it. And I will even say some of the reports initially, they said. A security guard at first someone had reported that he uh, had been pricked with a syringe uh, and blacked out and that this was just before the surge happened and the fatalities then that was later retracted where they said well no there's no evidence that a security guard was you know pricked with a syringe but I mean with all of this 
Uh, and I mean, hey, that some of the folks said, like, I haven't even gone to a concert in two years since COVID happened. Like, I wouldn't be a rush to be in a big crowd anyway. Now, I know this is probably a lot of younger people who, you know, forget COVID. We already wasted enough time. <sighs> if you're an attempted parent, this would be one like I would be a little hesitant to be in large crowds, especially if it's going to be anything rowdy. It's just too much way too much everything uh, right now to be in like large crowded areas people behaving erratically never know what could happen then you come back from the event and tell you that you're testing positive too like I would avoid all that stuff for the time being uh, let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, if you have commentary to share proceed can I be heard retired firefighter in Florida. Did you ever have to go and do that code enforcement? People having some sort of shindig or uh birthday bash or whatever it is. And you have to go and do code enforcement to make sure that they don't have 5,000 people crammed in a space that can accommodate like 50 people safely. Yeah. Well, yeah. Dade, Dade County fire department does that, uh, uh, a lot. Uh, and I've, uh, participated in it it's overtime if it's, it's well yeah it's it's overtime that you uh pay that you get for it uh so that is frequent uh down here uh with many different events uh at uh, the dolphins stadium at i mean you could think about just about anything that's at at a large stadium uh uh, there, there is a uh, stock car, uh, large stock car stadium uh, in the southern part of Miami-Dade County Homestead, uh, where where uh, professional race car driving is at, uh, where Dade County Fire Department uh, uh, is uh, operational uh, with with those events that takes place there. Uh, I would say the city it would be the city of Miami in the downtown area where they have those huge concerts uh down there. Those are the ones that have the potential of uh creating the uh uh mass uh, uh crowding and whatnot that can end up being tragic. Uh they they have them downtown. I forgot what what that type of music is called but it's super loud and it, it, for some reason people have, uh, have some kind of, uh, interest in it. Uh, and, but yeah, that, that's the city of Miami would have that area. Uh, but for the most part, Miami Dade County has most of, most of those areas, uh, where they have, uh, personnel on duty, uh, at all times at those events. Yeah. I mean, even 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 something like a some kind of political convention. Uh, uh, I, I have uh, been as a spectator at some events <clears throat> in downtown Miami where they they actually count the number of people that goes inside of a building, and at a point in time, if it's be getting to be more than what is safe they uh basically uh uh 
not allow, won't allow it for any more people to go into the building uh, because of the potential of what can happen uh, if some sort of panic starts or you know some other problems take place. It'd be difficult for fire rescue personnel to get to the uh, problem. Did I ask your question? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's that's standard. That's standard just about everywhere in this part of the world. It's standard. Uh, and the, normally the fire department takes care of that that issue. Uh, my uh, my report, uh, starting with, uh, there is a uh, quite interesting uh, documentary that's being advertised. I think it's on Showtime. I could be wrong, but it's on one of those those channels uh, regarding the uh, New York State Prison back in 1971, Attica State Prison. Uh, they have been, they have been documentaries on the, on the, uh, the takeover, the quote unquote prisoner takeover. Uh, that may not be an accurate identification, uh, but, uh, they claim it was the largest, uh, takeover of a prison in the history of America, uh, in 1971, I, I actually remember it. I was in ninth grade when that took place, and it kind of like dominated the national news, you know, the Walter Cronkite and whatnot during that time. Uh, it lasted for about three days. Uh, basically, uh, the uh, state government was just waiting, waiting until all negotiations broke down. And they made the decision to go in and uh, violently get control back in the prison. And with the hostages that they that the the inmates did uh, have, uh, all of them who were injured were injured by law enforcement gunshot wounds. On top of it, but anyway, uh, it's it's an interesting uh, documentary to uh, to view. Uh, I had a, uh, first cousin that, uh, was, I was given a report that passed, uh, Vietnam veteran. Uh, he, once he came back from, uh, combat in Vietnam, he, uh, joined uh, the city of Miami police department until retirement. I think after either 25 or 30 years. Uh, passed either the day or a couple of days ago. Uh, I can recall when I was a little boy, he would r- ride his bicycle from all the way from uh, the the Liberty City area uh, down to where I stayed at, and uh, and the uh, it was talked about on the cows years ago, Richmond Heights. Uh, he would come down. I remember when he came down to announce to my mother his aunt that he was uh, drafted and had to go and was going into the service. No, he had already been drafted and he was about to be shipped to Vietnam. That was the uh, issue. And I was afraid for him uh, because I knew about the war at the time. And uh, I did understand 
as a black male that he may not come back alive. Uh, he managed to do that. Uh, and, uh, as I mentioned before, he, uh, you know, uh, you know, lived, lived a life, lived a life. When he, when he was a very young child, he used to come, he used to come to my father's barbershop and, and sweep up the hair and whatnot, that sort of thing. But, uh, anyway, uh, uh, he passed away a couple of days ago. Uh, DCS program, DCS program, uh, today, uh, because he was present, Mr. Lonnie Lawrence, who, uh, at the time in, uh, 1979, 1980, he was the, the representative of Miami-Dade Police Department, uh, the spokesperson. He was the person that talked to the, the press. He's also a part of the DCS program. Uh, and, and at one time, he was the uh, director, the Miami-Dade County director of, of corrections in Miami-Dade County. Uh, because he was there today, uh, I uh, made sure I had with me the, the clip on the 1980 riots uh because he was on that eyes on the prize clip uh, about about a 20 minute clip uh that he was on it uh talking about his friend Arthur McDuffie who was brutally uh murdered beat to death by Metro Dade police his co-workers uh they beat him to death with uh, flashlights and what a past uh, cow's guest called nigger knockers, billy clubs. They literally beat him to death, crushed his skull. Uh, he ran a red light and was briefly in a high-speed chase. He slowed down and gave up. They handcuffed him took his helmet off, and beat him to death. Uh, that caused, well, after the, 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 it was four law enforcement officers that were arrested for for uh, the uh, the death of, of Mr. McDuffie, who was an insurance salesman and businessman. Uh, all four of them were were acquitted of all counts, of all of the counts that they had. And the reaction was a riot that took place in, De in December of 1980. I think I was in graduate school at that time, but that took place. Uh, and uh, after the 20-minute uh, clip, uh, we talked about it. Uh, I, I tried to make it relevant to what has been going on in this part of the world uh, over the last couple of years which is what they are more familiar with to identify to them that this just didn't start happening a few months ago or a couple of days ago. Uh, it's been going on for a long time. And then we, then we would talk about on what can one do to avoid being in confrontations with law enforcement. Uh, I also, uh, went about opening up a discussion on the hard task of 
asking them, do you think that a solely violent reaction to such a horrendous incident would solve our problems? And we talked about it. Interesting answers <laughs> that you can get from children, quote unquote. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, that's, that was, uh, basically, uh, the things that I have to report. Thank you. Much obliged retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, now I think we've had several folks. I think Irie probably retired firefighter as well, who talked about talking with younger black people, children about racism and uh, contact with enforcement officers specifically uh, race soldiers badge or no and consistently folks have said things like they got interesting responses humorous responses uh, emotional responses all types of different descriptors for you know how these dialogues have sounded I just pointed out no one has said I got logical responses because I believe we had a caller who said that's what we need more of. We didn't hear too many victims in the news reports who sounded like they were using counter racist logic. That's what we need. And yeah, to hear offspring black children not sounding logical and how they want to respond, which is sad because Unfortunately, there end up being a lot of older victims of racism who do not respond logically when they have contact with enforcement officers. Bravo uh, for sharing information on local history. I've talked about that for like years. That is like one easy, I would say uh, it's mandatory, really, wherever you happen to live, Washington State, Florida, uh, Alaska, England, wherever you are on the globe, Iowa in between local, national, global system. There are probably aspects of what we have the caller at the courthouse in Florida all the time talks about the archives and things that's right, you know, directly in your county and what have you. History of white supremacy, racism as a system. That's mandatory. So to do that, to be about to be able to pick out specific things that have happened these events and, and to go into the detail of that spectacular um more apparent that more of that maybe just maybe might help have uh more logical responses more logical behavior from non-white people children and older uh let's see uh other folks who dialed in uh, if you have a hand up commentary to share uh, we have about 10 minutes before we wrap up so do not wait till the last minutes if you have uh, thoughts to share can I be heard go ahead Mo in Dallas, yes, sir. I'll go ahead and yield. All right. 
much obliged caller in Florida. Oh, thank you very much. Greetings to Gus, the host, listeners and callers. Uh, I just wanted to make some comments on the reports. Um, the first one was I noticed that there was a, uh, I guess that was a metaphor where they were talking about the hockey team uh, from the high school where the person doing the interview, he made the comment saying, uh, you know, you know, when did all of this come to light? Uh, and it was right before you played the, the, um, the audio where you do the repeat and, and I'm just noticing also that they never seem to mention the, uh, the, the young racists that are perpetrating these, uh, acts of white supremacy and a lot of these reports as well. And I'm thinking that's also another way of showing that white people aren't ignorant about their racism and that defense attorney in the Arbery case, uh, I did when I saw that speaking of comparisons, like he, he said, you know, we don't need any black pastors, you know, that'll be like, uh, someone coming out in a Colonel Sanders, uh, white suit in a, in a white hood. So I'm like, how can you make that comparison? And really, like a chicken joke? Like, was that some kind of racist? You know, KFC, Colonel Sanders. Uh, you know, I thought about that. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about the emotional aspect of the victim that was the, the principal, I think. And someone in that report mentioned that, I guess it was like an 80% non-white i think if if i'm you know if i'm wrong uh my apologies on that but even if it's um a smaller amount of white uh students you know racism still can be widespread and can permeate the environment because races are that skilled um and i saw an ad for a, a card game right and it's called i guess live, laugh, lose. So I guess a person holds the cards and they got to try not to laugh from another person holding a deck of cards, telling jokes and they, they're calling it corny jokes. But the way the jokes are uh, structured, it definitely reminds me of racist jokes and uh, the younger generation of races are getting more skilled to where um, I've seen to where they can break the word nigger down to like having a username to where, you know, it'll be spelled like, you know, why you are. <laughs> and then it'll have the name Nick, I like N I C K and then a space G R R. So it'll be set for a person to uh, pronounce it, you know, you're a nigger, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, racism, white supremacy is dominant in all kind of ways. And, and that's all I had to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged caller in Florida. Uh, my observation, the refinement with the younger uh, race soldiers gaming, like what he talked about, like the usernames and such. 
the racism is so flat. There's so many reports uh, and what have you. Like we played some, we talked about it with some guests as well. Like right there, it's all over the place. Um, Colonel Sanders, he went from Jesse Jackson to Colonel. Like what? I don't even think Colonel Sanders like <laughs> to the all white jury. <laughs> like uh. Reverend Al Sharpton is going to come in in his old white suit and look like Colonel Sin and do what exactly? Throw chicken wings at the <sighs> doesn't get any better than tacky. Uh, let's see, Mo in Dallas. Um, yes, thank you. Yes, um, I was just going to add on to the white determination um uh, you you referred i, I think you recommended a a, a, a movie that it, or a documentary that um reminded me of one uh, white when white people get upset they they really do resolve problems the documentary i think was called don't f with cats or can't f with cats something like that um uh, and if anyone is interested the trailer <laughs> Uh, is enough to to show you what would happen um, if if the whites got upset and wanted to resolve an issue, um, and I'm saying that um, uh, to uh, just oppose how they react um, to when black children are at, are in danger. You know how their mom how their how their mom heart does whatever it does, as opposed to them getting into the uh, mindset of producing justice. Um, thank you. I'll be my line. Much obliged. Mo in Dallas. That's what stuck out to me about that documentary. It's a Netflix documentary. Uh, Don't F with cats. Um, the, yeah. When white people get serious, because these are not by their own admission, these are not like white millionaires like they have regular jobs and all of that these folks took their spare time sat around we are going to get serious and track down this international killer <laughs> like in our is and words end up becoming uh, a significant part of it and it's racism white supremacy at its core the white person ends up killing a non-white person uh don't know if I uh, stressed that enough, but I mean, it's white supremacy racism. He doesn't even go out and kill uh, someone white. Let me go get a non-white person and kill them. Uh, let's see. Is there anything else? I was going to make sure. Colonel Sanders. Amazing. Sleep. I can't emphasize sleep enough. Like the system of white supremacy does so much to uh, disrupt sleep. Uh, and that, in fact, the same way when there started to be more more recent reports about how uh, diet and eating correctly is so important for your immune system and not being obese and you know trying to get that weight under control if it's a problem plant-based diet from uh, so folks were saying hey this is suspicious like why haven't they been saying that the whole time like why not make that just as prominent as wash your hands and all the rest of it you know put that McDonald's down, put that cheese burger down, put those Cheetos down. Why haven't they been saying that if it's as important as folks have been saying in recent reports, medical professionals and the like. The same way with sleep. If sleep is that important where 
getting, they said, less than six hours. Really should be eight to seven. Some people maybe even need a little bit more. Not getting adequate sleep. And if they know black people in particular are not getting enough rest. Like, just in in terms of that should be just as prominent. Like, get ready. In fact, let's make time. Make sure that you're not getting any goofy schedules and white people could put that in practice. Right? Same way with don't F with cats. Take that information. They could be on it immediately. Noise ordinances and all the rest of it. And like they talked about that light pollution, noise pollution. They could get to all that. They do the exact opposite. Where are we going to put the bus terminal next to the Negros? Anything loud in it, that'll be next to the the train track. They make jokes about that. That's almost a cliche. The Negros back by the railroad track. Anywho, uh, so Tuesday, supposed to be this past Tuesday, rescheduled. Gail Lukasik, November 16th. She should be with us normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We are reading the book Countdown. Uh, Shauna Swan, Ph.D., uh, white genetic annihilation. You heard the report about Senator Hawley uh, talking about the attack against white men. Welsing moment. That is a metaphor, but uh, I would love to hear what Dr. Welsing had to say about that report. But that is very much in line with the book that we are reading about fertility rates, masculinity, at least in my view. I could be wrong, but that's uh, for this coming Thursday. We just started the book. Uh, this past Thursday so you can listen to the one episode or one archive uh, segment and you'll be all caught up ready for Thursday much obliged to folks who joined us live or archive hope it was worthy of your time and energy sobriety would be best Uh, you heard about the St. Louis military experiment against the black residents already enough, enough toxins uh, against us some we know about many that we don't uh, alcohol cigarettes all the rest that's one that we can voluntarily eliminate from our system in addition to being sober if you're going to go out be alert uh, I say no unnecessary travel no large events it's just way too chaotic violent right now uh, if you are going to go out if you see someone being rowdy hostile exit. Uh, You don't know if that person has a firearm. You don't know if that person has an armed entourage. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. Uh, You can contact enforcement officials or whatever you do as you are vacating the premises. Uh, If you are driving, you are sober, buckled, and you are not on the mobile phone. Uh, Just doing the small things that we can to avoid contact with the uh, race soldiers badge or no uh, and we need all of our attention given all of the dangers uh, COVID and everything else all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with 
another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Model counter-racist logic for other victims of racism. That is a challenge. All of us model counter-racist logic. You don't even have to call it that explicitly, but try as best you can to model counter-racist logic in your thought, speech, and conduct for other victims of racism. No name-calling, no gossiping is a big part of modeling counter-racist logic because it's not logical to name-call victims of racism. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>